0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, I guess just about anything can happen, including things that knock us off the air. We had a front come through last night, actually started yesterday afternoon, and the wind was blowing so hard according to a friendly neighbor who stopped by uh, I lost a piece of the roof Uh, given the fact that um, I'm kind of out in the middle of nowhere and I don't want to climb up on ladders before we do weekend shows because God help us if I fell off the roof I have to kind of wait till tomorrow to go up and check fortunately we're in a drought here in the great American Southwest so I don't think we're gonna have rain and uh, I will um, go and check tomorrow but uh, it was so windy You know, it was one of those Carson things. How windy was it? Well, it was so windy that the power kept flickering on and off, on and off. And then I'm upstairs and I hear this thumping. And then this morning, a very nice guy stopped by and he said, do you know that a part of your roof is lifting up? And I said, no, but thank you. And uh, anyway, we are here and it is calm. And uh, we have a very, very complicated show. So I want to get right to it because um, a lot of the stuff I would do up front, I'm going to do, later during the show, because I have some limited windows with a couple of our guests this morning. We're going to start, however, with a major breaking story, which is kind of like a week old, although the the hot part is only a few uh, hours old. The Chinese mission, the Tianwan mission, with the Zhurong lander, the fire god of Mars lander, has successfully landed on the red planet. So what we're going to do, given the fact that the Chinese are now on Mars, we're going to start tonight by kind of skipping around, and we're going to bring up a story connecting China and Mars, which is frankly amazing, unless you consider the fact that it's kind of in there with a whole bunch of other amazing discoveries and confirmations that we've been making ever since the Perseverance rover landed on Mars back on February 18th. So we're going to start out with um, um, Ron. No, I'm sorry. Well, Ron will be in the conversation. We're gonna start with Robert Morningstar, who is our specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. He is a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy, was a New York State Regents scholar at Fordham, where he received a degree in psychology. And while at Fordham in 1969, he participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. The reason Robert's here tonight is he's an expert in Chinese languages, history, and martial arts. He is acknowledged as a Master of Yang Family Tai Chi Wan of uh, the Hong Kong Tai Chi Masters Association and has taught at Oberlin College and Hunter College and the City University of New York. Uh, we also have been joined with uh, with Andrew, Andrew Curry, who was our resident uh, artist and is a he has a master's in art therapy and uh, ron gerbron who is one of our generalists kind of prides himself on being an untutored generalist but don't let that fool you he actually at one time attended two major universities simultaneously on the west coast and someday we may get into all that and um he kind of left academia because it wasn't uh, Well, it wasn't up to what Robert brings to the table. I'm sorry, Ron brings to the table. So without further ado, let me Mm -hmm. open the lines. And I heard someone humming there. That was Ron. Uh, Gentlemen, why don't we start by, Andrew, you kick us off as to what you've been looking at and tell us Mm -hmm. where to go in Radio with Pictures. And then uh, Robert will pick up the story. And uh, during the latter part of the hour, I'm sure that Ron will have some thoughts. But let's start with you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Richard.
1: Yeah, uh, so if everybody could go to the other side of midnight.com on your computer or your device, as Richard is off to say, and you'll come up to the show page, go to tonight's show, and click on tonight show banner, um, which I can't remember the name, guys. Can we, what was it again?
0: <laughs> as above, so below. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. You, you, mean, you mean for tonight's show. That's your.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: It is called. The Chinese have landed on Mars. Yeah, and what's next? With a with a so brilliant, it's, you know, it's, and what's next? And it's got a huge, you know, Chinese uh, uh, flag there, so you can't miss it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then if you go to my items, I think it's fast links
0: yep. to my items under
1: Andrew, and I have one item, and I like everybody to click on that. It's called number one. If I can go back and find it here, it's just a little bit down. It's Sorry. Titled folks. as above, so below. Yeah. And Richard, I would like you to set up what my first image is here in okay. Jezero Crater. Please.
0: Okay. Uh, we're looking at an upside-down version because normally when you have images or maps, North is at the top. That's the convention. This is I flipped this one, and then Andrew uses it as a template. South is at the top, so North is at the bottom. And at the southern part of Jezero Crater, this 30-mile-wide crater on Mars where the Perseverance lander uh, set down on February 18th, There are a series of massive structures. The guys on the right are something like four to 5,000 feet across. They're in very bad condition now. They're very ancient, they're very eroded. And the ones on the left are about 2,000 feet across. Um, And the one in the middle is probably maybe 6,000 feet, given the outline in terms of the uh, yellow box, what's inside the box. And I'm looking at this and I realize suddenly that I've seen this pattern before. And what I haven't seen is the fact that it was mirror imaged. The objects on the left mirror the Giza Plateau spacing of the Great Pyramids on the Giza Plateau. That's the inset of the bottom left of the image. And then to the right of that, there are the three Belt Stars of Orion in Conformance with Robert Vall's model um, published many, many years ago that the layout of the Giza Plateau pyramids mirrors to an extraordinary degree the layout of the Belt Stars of Orion, that is Osiris, the middle of the Osiris-Isis-Horus complex with set thrown in for good measure, the central theme of Egyptian um, mythology. And it is now generally assumed by a lot of scholars that Baval was right and that the Giza Plateau pyramids indeed were set down to mark the belt stars of the constellation of Orion. The ones on Mars, the ones on the left, they look eerily very, very similar. The ones on the right are like a mirror image, like a backed image, like a rotated image flipped left to right. And that's where the weirdness comes in because there's no re you can't, as someone suggested, rotate Mars upside down like a pole flip and have this happen. Doesn't work geometrically. It almost looks to me
2: <clears throat>
0: as if something dimensional happened, literally. I mean if we're if we're talking hyperdimensional physics and torsion field ether and you have an advanced technology that can literally you know, plunge physical 3D objects through dimensions and have them go from there to here? Are we looking at the memorialization of a dimensional flip sometime in the past history of the solar system? Now, this whole mythos has really grabbed Andrew uh, because he sees multiple levels simultaneously. That's one of the reasons he's on the team. And so he was looking at this... configuration the other day and he had a series of blinding inspirations and ahas and andrew take it away
1: yeah so yeah i have been starting to obsess on this (laughs) more richard and it honestly the whole dimensional shift in this mirrored image idea oh boy it just it made my the inside of my brain just feel like it was twisted all all over just trying to visualize this it's really really hard because i believe like you say it's operating in literally different dimensions but anyways i what one of the things that i noticed with this configuration of these six monuments which are definitely in various stages of erosion and ancient destruction and you can find a lot of geometry again again they look like giant arcologies anyways i i As usual, the things that we see on Mars – in fact, many things we see in the solar system, but definitely here on Mars. That's where we're at right now. There's an elegance. There's an inherent elegance to so much of the alignments and the art that we believe we're seeing, and this kept bugging me. I just kept going, there's a flow to this line, these two lines. So what I've done is I've put yellow boxes around a whole series of what we're calling pyramids or arcologies, these giant Sort of internal structures that housed, you know, perhaps tens of thousands or thousands of people, or like they're like mini cities. And I noticed there was like this sort of swooping line. So I I started to sketch over top, and I, so that's my second image. If I, I kind of toned back the image of, of this area of Jezero Crater, and I made these two swooping lines kind of going out to the sides. But then I noticed, Richard, that below it, there is, in fact, a couple more archologies and possibly a third one. It's just slightly
0: chopped up, and I put an IC4, and as I'm looking at this, I'm realizing suddenly we have another mirroring of the larger group in a lower group. I know. With two and then an offset for Mintaka, and then another one below the offset, which is in direct line, and that's got to be telling us something.
1: I know. I know. And so what I did then is I put a third line, a swooping line down, and it just kept coming across to me as calligraphy. Literally, again, folks, it's not that there is a calligraphy line on the surface of Mars. It's that these monuments are following a shape. Again, there's this – intrinsic elegance. Everything has multiple meanings to me. And I kept seeing it. This this pattern kept coming out. So
0: finally I drew it Well, hang on, hang on. We've established now with multiple examples, two minute account, that the Martians were exquisite three and four dimensional artists. Art is by necessity multi-leveled and multi-dimensional. Even in our dimension, it's multi-dimensional. So the placement of a line, the accent of a curve, the geometric relationship of one thing to another, it's all a gestalt of multiple levels of meaning. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And so I looked at this, I drew it out, and I go, oh my gosh, this feels like language. This feels like a calligraphic language. So I think the first thing that hit my mind was – a was an Asian language. And because we've been talking about China, I'm going, is this Chinese? Is it Arabic? So I sent a message to Robert, Robert Morningstar, who is here on the panel tonight. I sent him a message. I showed him the lines. I didn't show him that I had put the lines over top of this image because I wanted him to react just to my art. So you can see I put – Oh, you
0: just sent him the proto-calligraphy.
1: Yes, just the calligraphy, the two versions. So I did the – like you can see below my second image – I have the the calligraphic lines. The first one is just the two lines, the mirrored um, uh, uh, Giza plateau imagery idea, and then the the real what what we see as the Giza plateau lining up with um, the Orion, Orion's belt. Then I put the third line, which I, I you know I can see going down the middle again, tracing these arcologies, and just like Richard, you said there's even more that go down. And I sent it to Robert, and Robert shoots back an email to me and says, "Where did you get this from? <laughs> what, are, what, what, is, what was this? A download? Did you where did you see this? What is this?" And, and he's and he, so he's coming after me, right? I'm like, I, I I I I just was wondering, does it have meaning? Is, is it is it Chinese? He goes, he goes, yes, it is. And so Robert, do you want to pick up on uh, where we went off from there?
3: Sure. Well, it was a, a nice surprise. I got the uh, calligraphy—that's what I, we call it. That's what it is. And I said to myself, "Oh, Andrew's uh, learning how to write Chinese, <laughs> 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 and beautifully, by the way." They're, they're, oh, thank you. they're not proto I studied under a grandmaster of calligraphy, Cheng Man Ching, and I said to myself, "Those are master strokes. It's absolutely beautiful. I admire it." So I said to myself. Oh, uh, he's learning to read, write Chinese, fundamental characters, which are called radicals. In Chinese, there are 214 basic strokes from which all the other characters are constructed. So he has three of them there. The one that's large, uh, thick at the top and tapers uh, to a point on the lower left is uh, a fundamental stroke that is, can represent hair. And it can represent the back leg of a man. The stroke that's thick at the top, excuse me, uh, narrow at the top and and strokes down to the right and thickens at the right, that's called a foot, like F-O-O-T, a Chinese foot. So when you combine the first stroke and the second stroke together, joining the second stroke at the midsection of the first stroke, you have what is called Ren, or the walking man. If you take the first stroke, which I said symbolizes hair, and draw a vertical line right under it, it's called the standing man, also pronounced ren. So these two are fundamental radicals that are used for many things that pertain to man and action. So the walking man is the one that has the two strokes, like an inverted Y. If you go left and then right, an inverted Y. Now the, the short stroke uh, which is considered a dot or um, a, a dash. Of, uh, when you add that to the stand- walking man and put it right in the crotch, it's a walking man with a penis. So from that one, you can create the word big and supremely big. So if you imagine yourself standing with your legs astride, widely astride, and you put your arms straight out, and I'm making a star, but... You know, how big was the one that got away? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, it was that big. Mm -hmm. And that makes the word da, means big. But if you take the penis and put it between the legs, it means tai. It means supremely big. And that's the first character of the word taiji, supreme ultimate. So Andrew sends me these characters, and I said, uh, well, you know, that's what you've got there if you combine them these different ways. You have a walking man with a penis. So then uh, he sends it to Richard, and Richard said, you know who that is?
2: <laughs> and, said,
3: and it struck me that, yes, that, that is, uh, you know, quite a rational, logical, reasonable explanation. The other thing I have to say as a pilot is that often civilizations put landmarks that can be seen from the air i think the pyramids are some of them but just to give you a a small idea in 1994 i flew to saratoga new york i rented a plane because there was going to be an annual eclipse there and i just had to see it and i flew up to saratoga and there are a lot of little airports up there but then when i got there I, i made a turn and there i could see on the ground written on the airport saratoga (laughs) <laughs> and so I knew that I was at the right airport. So Andrew may have um intuited something, you know. The artist has a second sight and I know Andrew has that. So I was very gratified to to hear the story and I'm uh, very happy that you invited me on the show to talk about Chinese characters. Hmm. So Andrew.
1: Well when I, so I, it, just like Robert said, I reached out to Richard because folks, you know, we'd have a lot of back and forth during the week and a lot of prep to how the shows go, at least when we're doing the Mars stuff and we're included. Um, because usually it's Concia and Richard, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And he goes, you, you, you found what? And I'm like, I said, a man, a standing man with a penis. And he goes, <laughs> I thought he was going to admonish me like, are you back at that again? No, he goes, it means Osiris. And I, I went, you've got to be kidding me. So then, yeah, and then, then the, the, the the cookie crumbled, the, the, the Chinese fortune cookie crumbled on the surface of Mars right now. And that's where we are, everybody. It's, uh, again, elegance and an inner framework, and an underlying uh,
0: tracing. Guys. See, the, the thing that I'm resonating with is as you're talking about this, guys, is it possible, Robert, these Chinese strokes – Literally, in, in terms of this particular character, originated with, uh, with, uh, with Orion because of the, you know, angle between the two other stars, Anilim and Alnatek and Mintaka. And this is embedded in ideography. I think that's the right
3: term. Yes. Um, yes. To
0: Absolutely. stand for what Orion, Osiris, stood for all over the world. Because we all, at some level, go back to Orion. Orion is yeah. central, not just in Egyptian culture, but all over the planet. There's even a giant statue that's been reded. Robert, talk to them
3: about England, okay? Because I
0: sent that link around yeah. this afternoon. Yeah, there's a place called
3: Cern Addis where this giant, uh, a chalk man, they, they constructed him out of chalk. Um and he's gigantic, and he's enshrined on a hillside in England. Well, describe what he looks like, because I don't think we well, have a, a photo up there. He, looks, will... he actually looks like um, Orion with the club, and his penis is erect, and uh, he's, his legs are straddled, and he's a facsimile of the, of the characters that I, I just described. But you asked me, more importantly, about Orion. Everybody talks about the belt stars of Orion, but few people ever refer to what some people say is his sword. But really, it's the same thing. The three stars, you know, you have uh, Mintaka, Amitaka, and now, And then you have a three that they say is a sword, but that's also the penis. So Orion has the penis. If you say that his sword is not a sword, but it's exactly the same character as the man with the club up there. On the hillside in England. There's a, actually a very funny
0: cartoon that I'm going to post as part of my items tonight that refers to this. It's supposed to be a very scholarly meeting, and the guy at mm-hmm. the podium is standing there. I'm going to describe it, and he says, "You know, we've just figured out that the uh, that the, the sword of Orion is actually his penis, and you see these little, um, you know, uh, bull- and, uh, what they call them balloons." off mm-hmm. off camera to the right in one of the frames one of the panels of the cartoon and it says how do you think we maintain the illusion it was a sword all this time
3: of course it is that kind of thing." Right. <laughs> let me say a little bit about the chinese when when they talk about uh the penis they have euphemisms and they they call the penis tai yang the supreme yang And they refer to the uh, female genitals as Tai Yin, the supreme yin, because we come into the world through the yin channel, and the yin channel is fertilized by the Tai Yang. So in both those characters, the first character is that, you know, straddling the legs with the big arms straight out and uh, the phallus hanging down. So I think that uh, we're on to something. It's a universal symbol. Well, it goes even deeper. You know,
0: this is one of those rabbit holes that if you go down, you never come back. Anyway, it turns out if you look at the Greek and a number of Greek mythologies, Orion himself seems to be a mangling in English of the Greek root for urine, meaning, you know, fluid ejected yes. from males by the mm-hmm. penis, and mm-hmm. Orion or Ururin, where the U got dropped is was the product of soldiers urinating on a a um uh, cow's hide or or a bull's hide, and then it was buried, and he springs forth so there's this etymological multi levered meaning all which seems to focus on procreation origins of humans and in 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 recent history of course. You know w- without the the stellar part um you know it, it's known how babies are born there's as you just said in the chinese there's the yin yang. The, well it looks to me as if we're looking at a pun intended a seminal mythology which is speaking to how the hell we got into this place which has to do with orion which brings us back to the multiple copies of the belt stars in orion on the planet Mars,
3: Richard, you just sparked a
0: thought in me. Uh, That's what this is all about. about.
3: Go for this, it. This is the seminal, uh, the seminal initiation and creation of life. I don't know if uh, anybody here has heard or read the instructions of Enki from the Anunnaki. I know that Keith knows this, but. A couple of years ago, they translated another cylinder seal, and it's called The Instructions of of Enki. And it tells the story of the creation of Adam by the god Enki and 14 goddesses who volunteered to uh, receive this bundle that they concocted out of essences, out of genetic material, Mm -hmm. cells, mucus, and saliva, and uh, the semen of Enki and hair and they made this bundle and they cut the bundle into 14 pieces and they put four, one of each of these 14 pieces in each of the, the 14 goddesses and they waited 10 months and at the end of 10 months Adamu the red man the man of red dirt was born the first Adam and I think that tells a story of genetic engineering
0: well, you know uh, where the fourteen pieces enter in, don't you? No, tell me. Fourteen is the mythological representation of Orion. Remember the classic mythos where the, you know, the the, the evil henchmen of Set cut or you know Osiris into oh, fourteen yes. pieces and all that, yes. and then there, yes. they, you know, Isis went around finding all the pieces and putting back together. She couldn't find you know his his phallus, so she made right. one out of gold, etc. And that's how Horus was conceived. But fourteen is a double tetrahedron. It's two spinning tetrahedrons, which is the complete symbol of the physics, which is the symbol of, you know, this this show, The Other Side of Midnight, which um I'm trying to think who it was who created that for us. Um, can, can you remember? It it wasn't Andrew, it was um Oh, it was Tommy Vaughn. Tommy Vaughn, Tommy Vaughn, yes, yes. Anyway, it's all a gestalt. It's all different facets of the mirror, and it all goes to, drum roll, the real origins of Homo sapiens
3: on two worlds. Yes, I think we can concur that the Osirian mythology of Egypt is a transmogrification of this Anunnaki creation. Yes. yes. It's really uh, remarkable. A tale
0: of a tale of a tale of a tale, and it goes down through history. And like telephone at the parties back in the 50s and 60s, if you have people sitting in a circle and you whisper a secret to the person on your right, by the time it gets back to you around the circle, it's a pale vestige of what you whispered into the person on your right. So these things have a way of you know, drifting through time, and there are fragments that are preserved, and what I do to try to piece back the original is I look for the key numbers. Because going back to Andrew, Andrew, if we, yep. in fact, were put through another dimension and there was a dimensional reversal, kind of like the Superman Phantom Zone, right? that would have had to do with hyperdimensional physics, which is two rotating tetrahedrons symbolically, or fourteen. You know, rotational symmetries, which gets us to Orion and the mirror image there on the plains of Jezero. It's yeah,
1: incredibly it's, elegant. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, that's my point, Richard, is that there's just this absolute beautiful elegance, even in the, in the destruction of this ancient sandbox. You know, the core of this is about fertility and rebirth and transformation, and it's coming.
0: I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's a great. I
1: think thing. it's here.
0: Yeah. it isn't coming, it's here. Look at all okay. the you-know-what hitting the, hitting the rotating kitchen appliance. I was talking with the the other day, and she says, well, it's not just in space. And I said, really? Look around. There is not one facet of human experience now, human interaction, human management, human government, human response, which isn't totally... Totally, as my grandmother said, cattywampus.
3: I would like to offer a, a comment on the relationship of Giza, the belt stars of Orion. You got and, one, and...
0: you got less than one minute. So why do we hold okay, that? Kind of Mars. Yeah, why, do,
3: why, why do we uh, hold basically that? This. All right. I believe that Giza is a terraform area that the Martians who survived came here and saw a region of Earth that reminded them of their destroyed home planet. And for a number of topographical characteristics of that particular place, they chose to build the three pyramids there, perhaps as tombstones to the lost civilization. And after the break, I can give you more details about the relationship of the Qatar Basin. Hold it it there, hold it there.
0: My guests this morning, too numerous to mention. They will introduce themselves when they come on in a regular sequence. We got an incredible second hour, which is going to feature um, a reprise of two guests who've been on the show many times. Um, And Ron is going to come back with his responses to what we talked about in the first half hour. Third hour, Tim Saunders is joining us. And Kinsea is waiting in the wings. This is uh, David Bowie. Um, life on Mars. Kind of appropriate. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The wrong guy. Oh, man, I wonder if you'll ever know who's in the best of the Is life on Mars?
4: Just remember, the virus that they say is making everybody sick. Nowhere in the world, not one country, not one institution, not the CDC, nobody has this virus that's making us sick on file. It does not exist. All the Freedom of Information Acts are empty over and over again. The virus nowhere exists. So if that is correct, and that's what they're telling us, how in the world can they be testing for it? How in the world can they be making this kind of injection to put in us to save us from this? So we need to start asking the obvious questions because by science and medicine, that makes no sense. I've never heard of that before. Are we able to purchase all those? and this was supposed to be a novel infection you start looking at the big picture you start looking at everything you'll find this is actually a planned pandemic. this is not actually what they're telling us in the media so then you have to ask the bigger question why so we have to look closely into this and what's Very concerning is that none of the manufacturers or our government will allow any of us to analyze the vials. It's illegal for us to analyze them. They won't let us look in there. Well, why? If there's nothing to hide, why can't we see what's inside these vials? Because right now we have no proof that this virus even exists. What made people sick around the world, in my opinion, is many different things and they used a testing mechanism that was faulty and that could cross-react with anything. It could literally cross-react with bacteria, with other foods, with other colds, false positives. So that's meaningless. So there's no proof of this supposed, you know, bad, weird virus affecting everybody. This is Dr. Carrie Made on the other side of the news. And I'm excited to be here because we have freedom of speech and no censorship.
0: Tortured, Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow Now the workers is struck the fame His leaven's on
5: sale again
2: See the mice in their million
0: hordes
2: From my pizza to the north of the north to my mother, my dog, and clowns But the film is the starting ball Cause I wrote it ten times or more It's about to be rip again, But I ask you to focus on me oh. I can hear the dance floor Now oh. oh. yeah. look at the trees and go Take a look at the dog man, reading of the wrong guy. Oh man, it's wonderful to have a nose. This is the best thing to have a Is there life on Mars?
0: And welcome back everyone. Is there life on Mars? Was there life on Mars? Are we from Mars? Was life itself delivered to the Earth from Mars? Or was everything in the solar system delivered here by something so unimaginably vast and reality-changing that literally we're living in some kind of other-dimensional pocket universe? A phantom zone, perhaps? Anyway, back to my guest of the morning. Uh, Andrew can only stay with us another five minutes. so. But I wanted to keep you on for this transition because if 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 you guys are right, then the reason the Chinese have landed on Mars is because they know they're going
3: home. That may be. If I may finish that um, little insight. Absolutely. Back in, 19, in 1998, I deciphered the face of Mars as a geometrically encrypted code. And you're familiar with my work. I, did, I rectified the slant range image that was released through your efforts. Remember, you're petitioning Clinton and Gore to like make them take the picture. So they gave us a slant range picture. Well,
0: it wasn't Clinton and Gore. It was
3: Nayland. He was the one running the camera. Okay. Well, anyway, we got the picture, and I was able to rectify it, to straighten it out. And when I straightened it out and balanced it, I split the face in half. I mirrored each side of the face. The first figure that came out was a female lion. The second figure that came out was a bearded man with a conical crown. I stared at that picture for half an hour and something said, there's something there, something more there, you're not seeing it. And I finally saw it. When I flipped that second picture over without doing anything to it, it turned into a hawk. And subsequently, going back to the original image, and instead of doing a bisection, I did a golden mean, a 1.619 uh, extension, a little more than one and a half. And that turned into a cow or an ox. So there I found four figures, the face of a man, the face of a hawk, the face of a lion, and the face of an ox.
0: This sounds and weirdly like
3: <clears throat> Ezekiel. Ezekiel and the four evangelists are represented by each of those figures. Mm. So this is what I felt is that I discovered a heraldry, a a symbol system of a solar religion. Subsequently, around at the same time, I was really being guided. I discovered a, a surveyor's plan of Giza done by Flinders Petrie. And all of a sudden, I saw that that whole area, is you know how Japanese like to do miniature gardens, a terraformed facsimile of planet Mars. And it was so explicit across from Giza to the west toward Libya is the deepest, lowest region of the Mediterranean called the Qatar depression, 450 feet below sea level. On the far end of that, where these mountains rise, there is a holy mountain that the Egyptians called Al-Wajit. Now, as I, when I was a child, I read a lot of classics, and I read uh, Classics Illustrated, and I read Alexander the Great. And in the last panels of that uh, Classics Illustrated, it says that Alexander died in Persia, his body was taken back to Egypt, and then he was buried on Mount Olympus. Now, for 2,000 years, Greek archaeologists went all over Greece for looking for Mount Olympus and looking for the tomb of Alexander the Great. They didn't find a bone. But in 1994, they found Alexander's tomb at a place called Siwa, which is a little oasis at the base of this mountain called Al-Wajit, the holy mountain, the holiest mountain in Egypt that stands opposite the Great Pyramids of Giza. And that is the original Mount Olympus. So I had this insight that the pyramids represent the three volcanoes of the Tarsus Montes and that Awajit represents Olympus Mons, that the Qatar Depression represents the eye of Mars, Solus Locus, and not far away is a facsimile on Earth, or a simile, of the Valles Marineris and it's called the Great African Rift Valley. So when the Martian remnant arrived, lonesome, lonely for home, their destroyed home planet, I believe they erected monuments, the Great Pyramids, as tombstones to their lost civilization, and they terraformed Giza and that region of Africa because it looks like Mars, and need I add that according to Graham Hancock, the very word Cairo means Mars. So I think we're having revelations here. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think also this, there is no reason why both things can't be true. They are aligned to the Belt Stars of Orion. They are facsimiles of the Tarsus Mountains, the three volcanoes uh, adjacent, not far from Olympus Mons and the Eye of Mars, which, by the way, in the last week, I found a photograph, a panoramic photograph of Mars, which proves that NASA has been lying about the depth of Solus Locus for as long as they've been lying. (laughs) They've been lying for a long time. So I hope in some sometime (laughs) in the coming to present that for you. Okay. Uh, We're going to come back
0: to this, but Andrew, I know you can't stay very long. I want, I want you to kind of close off this part of the discussion. Sure.
1: Well, it's funny as Robert was talking and as we went into the break and I heard a little bit of Bowie, um, what I was wondering, Richard, is if we pull back a little bit and also I've been having a back and forth with one of the listeners who were having a little little repartee back and forth about
0: <laughs> Oh, tell us, tell a... us by all means. <laughs> well, no. It's just it's just um,
1: uh, you know, we're talking about fertility and, and male genitalia. I'm wondering if we were to pull out a little farther here in Jezero Jezero Crater, if we would find, perhaps even in the Chinese character, Robert, the equivalent of the female of the goddess. It'd be very interesting to look a little wider, and, and that might be a little project for this week.
3: Sure, let's look through. Let's look through, because you know you can recombine those strokes in, in uh, a myriad, myriad forms and myriad meanings. Um, the word Dao also uh, comes to mind. So let's work on it uh, during the coming week. I'm, I'm intrigued by the whole idea.
0: Okay, before we lose Andrew, Ron, you have anything you want to add?
6: Huh. Well, perfect timing. I was just uh, yeah, Andrew, if you're going to use uh, a discussion of penis and the phrase uh, we should pull
0: it out a little in the same <laughs> <in> sentences. <laughs> oh, uh, you, you should perhaps you, should, you understand yeah, this, been, this well, program I, is getting an R rating, right? <clears <clears <throat> yeah, I,
6: I, I believe me. I, I've I've been listening
0: to a lot of this, but it's uh the
6: uh I'm on that level. Uh first off, uh in reverse order uh, Robert just set me off because if Graham Hancock is another one of those people that claims that Cairo means in any discernible, connectable way Mars, then he's an idiot too. <laughs> I'm 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 tired of why tired you, of going through you the tell explanation us about what, again.
0: What, what do you really think? <clears throat> yeah, I know. That's just what well, That's
2: that's no. The
7: actual button. translation I understand
0: isn't. means victorious, as victorious in war. So by metonymy, Cairo has assumed the mantle of the god of war, i.e. Mars, but there's no one-to-one translation. No,
6: and however, the ba- the battle in question – and I won't get into the, the niceties of uh, uh, one interpretation of what means war or battle or you know anything else. Uh, yeah, that's the right idea, but the conflict was the between Set and Horus, and it was an epic battle. It's one of the feature things in Egyptian mythology because it went on for a week, and that's a week in God terms, I suppose. It got such. (laughs) No, it's seven.
0: It's seven tetrahedral spins of something.
6: Yes. Okay. That yes. That too. It. uh, It got. It got so annoying to the rest of the pantheon that they uh, convened a council of the gods to settle it for them. Decided that uh, Horus could indeed have Egypt. Because it was a naturally, it was a real estate dispute, you know, just like happens with um, families, <clears throat> and uh, the uh, that set could have the foreign lands, uh, which actually included most of the rest of the earth, because they just considered anything past the Black Zone, which is where the rich fertile soil was, to be, um, um, well,
0: just, you mean the Nile Valley just
6: foreigners. Yeah, well, yeah, to the, uh, to the east of the, uh, of the Nile Valley. That's the, uh, that was Kemet. That was the black lands with the super rich soil that, uh, they relied on for their crops. Anyway, that's, he got that and the, uh, and everything else which meant the rest of the world. So he wasn't always a villain. But not that, I'm defend- not that I'm defending him because he's. But he's, he wasn't exactly a Satan figure.
0: Well, uh, again, we don't have a lot of time, so no. let me close the loop here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horus, okay. Well, Horus is also called Red Horus and identified directly with Mars. So you don't have to go with the Cairo kind of oblique Dickinson reference. You got it right there, in uh, Horus. Ah, yes, but the Red
6: Horus, Red Horus is one of three or four Horus uh, figures that are, see, they were avatars. And so they didn't, they weren't always a perfect fit. You know, we can't, you can't just say that they were facets of one and the same thing. They weren't exactly. They were fulfilling the same role. And it has to, and it would be too long an explanation as to how gods get to be tagged that way. But this is how gods get imported from one country to another. A completely different god with a completely different backstory becomes a local god someplace else with a local story because the, there's a one-to-one correspondence in their value or their deeds or their powers uh, with what Mythology they needed in the messy. new location.
0: It was, since we're going to lose yes, Andrew – and hang, so, hang on, hang on. Since we're going to lose Andrew, any, any but, final thoughts? Hang on, Ron. Hang on. Yeah
1: uh no i just look forward to hearing
0: the archive of the show when i
1: get back so i sorry i have to leave folks and everybody here in the panel
0: but um we will pick this up again next week i guarantee because we yeah. will learn more stuff by next week it's asymptotic yeah. so thank you yeah, andrew no. and go say hi oh, to everyone <laughs>
1: yeah long weekend we got some guests
0: and uh oops i didn't say that okay that <laughs> take care
1: take care everybody
6: okay Great. ron andrew. Okay, well, uh, there's actually a – rather than me arguing with it, there's actually a deeper uh, resonance with uh, business about the calligraphy matching the um, shape of the um, um, outline of this, that, and the other thing. Uh, Some years ago, I was showing some work that I had done on some images to a friend of mine who happened to be Persian. And fluent in african or African in Arabic Farsi, and several other things, and very interested in esoteric subjects as well, anyway, I showed him these things, and I said, look, this looks like this looks like a character of some sort and he got all excited, and this was something that was on something on the moon, okay, and it was a, similar to what you're describing in Jezero Qua- crater there with the um, just the shape of the way things were laid out. He said, no, 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 that's a character in Arabic. It means God is great and, and he, some variation on Allah Akbar. And I said, really? And so he showed me. And I said, yes, it, it was. It was exactly the same shape. So I wonder if there is some sort of fundamental resonance behind some sort of calligraphic uh, presentations that, has, that sometimes has a deeper meaning. Because the business about Orion, the reason Orion is a universal constellation, at least in the northern hemisphere uh, uh is because it it's a very distinctive constellation you know in ancient times they didn't have the same constellations that we have, only a couple of them were pretty much the same, even with a different name but Orion's always always been there you know it's it, in a lot of ways it's the most in some bizarre way it just
0: well, what's so strange is, about Orion we that. is that the big, you know, incredibly large, splendiferous constellation we now identify with Betelgeuse and Rigel and Bellatrix, the stars at, at the end of the kind of rectangle of the, both all the corners, were not yeah. really really recognized. The only asterism that was recognized are the belt stars, and those are pan-cultural around the world. They're given names. They're given identities. They're given a persona, but not what we think of as the bigger constellation of Orion, meaning that something was crucially important about the belt. And Robert, coming back to a point you made, um, I don't think the guys that came from Mars were replicating Mars. They were replicating the big guy, the big origin, which is Orion, Somehow the belt itself and everything else was a copy and a reiteration of that mythos, that origin, that creation story, that connection, maybe that dimensional
3: provocation. Yeah, You know, there's a very interesting thing about that region of uh, outer space, and it has to do with something NASA discovered about 15 or 20 years ago. They said that new stars are being born all over that region, and that the equivalent of 60,000 Earth oceans of water are being generated every day. Uh, To go back to what Ron said about the council to bring uh, the war to an end between Horus and Seth, it's also reminiscent of the division of the Earth between Enki and Enlil at the end of their battle. Mm -hmm. Enki was given Africa, and Enlil was given the other side of the Earth and um, there's just uh, too much to tell, too mm. much
0: to tell. OK, we've got about exactly. 10 minutes till the top of the hour. Robert's going to do something just before the top of the hour break, and I won't uh, presage what it is because I will let him do that. That means I've got nine minutes, actually now eight, to talk about the Chinese landing on Mars. So what I want everyone to do is to go to the other side midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says rather grandly the Chinese um, uh, on Mars, what's next? Click on my fast links under the banner that will take you to my items. Scroll down to number five. This is a side-by-side comparison uh, of the deployment of the rover about four or five days after the landing. Uh, The landing took place uh, Saturday, our time. The deployment of the rover took place on Friday, Our time and we've got a few stills because they have a very limited bandwidth situation getting data uh, From Mars back to earth so far and you'll see this side-by-side comparison of the rover um, kind of looking back toward the uh, uh, Lander in these two versions one at the beginning of its roll down the ramp the other at the very end Uh, there's another couple of pictures in the uh, First uh, item up at the top on the, the BBC News coverage of the landing itself the previous five days, except for one image of the rover looking down toward the ground. All of the horizon images of the of, uh, Zhurong have been in black and white. The Chinese have given us no color images of what Mars looks like for over a week now and they've had plenty of time, plenty of bandwidth. They could have given us wonderful color shots. How do I know? Go to item number six. This is the, one of the first images they sent back from the moon uh, when they deployed Chang three. Remember Chang is the moon goddess and she had a pet rabbit, Yutu, 2 that she took with her in her isolation and um, um, I guess imprisonment on the moon as part of the Chinese mythos. And they sent us these gorgeous color images Immediately, of the deployment of the rover, they gave us video. Of course, they were much closer. They had much more bandwidth, but they could have given us color stills. For some reason, they seemed to be punting on the color of the Martian sky. Gentlemen, any thoughts?
3: Well, my first thought was, wow, they really landed nowhere.
0: You know, (laughs) you
3: took them in nowhere. And the first photo... It was so nondescript. It's flatter like the, than
0: Kansas. Okay, we agree yeah, on. I like
3: said it looked like the Gobi Desert. Yeah, we're, but then we're, the we're, second photo? We're not in Kansas anymore, but. covered with rubble, so dense, so thick. I said to myself, I wonder if their rover will be even able to negotiate that. So one side, I did hear that they were planning to land near a dried ocean bed. So one part, that Gobi Desert part. Could be the ocean bed, and the other part could have been the beach strewn, strewn with the debris of the Martian cataclysm. That um, wait. wait I mean. are you looking
0: at the image I had number five?
3: No, I'm not. I'm talking about two images that I saw earlier in the week. One was in physics.org, and the other one was the first mm-hmm. image that they showed, which uh, is just, just sand with a couple of rocks sticking out of it. So well, that's I mean, what I mean. all
0: the images show. There are the the Viking two. You may have been mistaking the Viking two panorama back in 76 for the Zhirong landing because
3: no 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 it was in physics.org that they said first color pictures from from Mars from the Chinese rover and that was totally different. There's only
0: uh, one picture and it's of the of the rover itself with the solar panels and you can see a bit of landscape you know kind of off to the side. But there's no panoramic sweep in color of anything with the landing. Anything. I don't care what physics.org say says. I
3: panoramic. I said a still photo showing a rock-strewn area. It's and not. This, it's
0: not from this landing. It cannot well, be. Physics.
3: Physi- this is the only landing China's made, and physics.org said that this is a. a if they
0: if they if they had it, everybody would have it. Nobody else has it. Therefore, some copy editor. It. That's physics- an assumption, Richard. No, uh, it we, is not. I'm, I'm, I'm tuned, uh, tuned into the uh, actual Chinese news services. Don't you think the Chinese news services would publish their own physics.org is made of ordinary human beings. They made a mistake. Okay. okay. And and what you might do is you might send it in the Skype window, this image, so I can see if it's familiar from another mission. Ron, you had something you wanted to say.
6: Oh, I just want to say I wondered if that's the same image that I saw that Robert's talking about, which you said was uh, a, well, basically a promo illustration, not, uh, not actually a photo.
0: Yeah, well, they put out several I, posters I, having nothing to do no, with actual. No, it wasn't a poster. It was an actual photograph. Uh, so, would you like so to make a bet? Find would you like to make a little bet? Anyway, moving on. Um, yes. The big question I have is why are they only publishing black and white images? which gets to the whole um, mythos of the atmosphere of Mars, which is a real obsession of mine. And the color is indicative of the reality of the atmosphere. And my stories being a JPL when, you know, the colors were totally switched between morning and night. And one of the PI, uh, one of the principal investigators, son was chased around the lab by the security guys because he was turning the monitors back to real color. And they almost threw him out of the lab, et cetera, et cetera. So the color of the Martian sky, indicative of its density and what it's made of, seems to be a cause celeb. And the Chinese have waffled. They have punted. They have temporized. They have kicked the can down the road, as the cliche goes, because they have not given us any color of the skies or the landscape. And the one you're talking about, Ron, was a colorized Mm -hmm. fake color Version Like, you know, TMC does colorized versions of 1930s films through a process called colorization. There is one image that's out there, which is a colorized version of the original black and white image from the lander. But it's not real color. It's fake color as somebody wanting color. So they basically impugned on the Chinese black and white image a color version, which is fake.
3: I mean, yeah, which he, does ha- Which does concerned.
6: happen. That's why I'm,
0: I'm, just, I'm not disputing
6: anybody here because that, yeah. that does happen. I'm just saying that, that I, I can accept that that does happen, because I don't see why they're not publishing any color pictures unless the camera's broken. I think mm. we should start a viral rumor that their color <laughs> camera doesn't work, and
3: then we'll get color pictures rather quickly.: I doubt if we.: I will. was suspicious of the photo because the sky was not blue. And um, we have uh, about one minute to the top of the I line. was going to yeah. say
0: it's time for Robert to do his
3: honor- honorable
0: thing. Robert? Yes.
3: Okay. Well, we're two minutes from a very critical moment in history. At exactly 1 a.m. this time, 6, 6 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, the HMS Hood was lost in the Denmark Strait in a battle with the famous German battleship, the Bismarck. And 1,415 men, 70% of whom were under the age of 18, perished in less than three minutes. There were only three survivors. And the admiral in charge of the hood was Lancelot Holland. He went down with the ship. And I am commemorating that tonight. Uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to go to the Soldiers and Sailors Monument to we'll do a form and do the sword form in memory of these. British sailors who gave their lives to defeat Nazism. Because if the Bismarck had not been sunk, England would have lost the war. It was a pirate ship that was out to destroy the convoys that were feeding and warming up England. So I feel a very deep kinship with these sailors. Richard is also a son of a U.S. Navy man. My father served on the seas in World War II as well. So this is the theme of the Royal Navy March. That
0: Welcome back everyone to the other side of midnight it is the uh, 11 o'clock hour in the land of enchantment uh, we're now going to bring on two additional guests uh, both of whom have been on the show before um, the first one is um, D. Arthur Gusner, who was on uh, last week and um, was so intriguing with his research in terms of the um, form and function and measurements imprinted indelible measurements in the scale of the great pyramid as keyed to a sonic code a 440 hertz code that we're going to talk a bit more about it this evening and we're also going to bring on um uh, barbara honiger who as you know has been on the show many 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 times she was a former policy executive in the reagan white house a uh, very highly placed woman at that time when women in administrations were rather rare and the reason she's on tonight is because uh, where Daryl was talking about a second hand story of someone he talked to who had been in the Sphinx and had descended through a tiny passage to the um, uh, Tomb of Osiris Barbara was actually there So without further ado and to the uh, uh, dulcet tones of Paul Horn playing in the uh, Grand Gallery and the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, Daryl and Barbara, welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, Richard.
7: How can you hear me?
0: We can hear you. Hi, Barbara.
7: Great. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi, Daryl.
0: Hi, Barbara. So where do you guys want to begin? Uh, I I think we should begin with Daryl, because you have some additional information that I found extraordinarily fascinating, and I was kind of hoping that we could have uh, uh, put this on the air last week, but we couldn't, and I think maybe it's more appropriate that we do it tonight, because we can have Barbara with us, so um, Daryl, why don't you go first, okay? Okay.
8: Well, I'm not quite sure which information you're speaking of. We covered a lot of items.
0: Um, the hieroglyphs.
8: Oh, yes, of course.
0: So you need to, um, you need to reprise everybody on the model, on, on the theory, okay, and then kind of come up with that really amazing additional piece of information from Egyptian hieroglyphs themselves.
8: Well, to begin with, the hieroglyph is something which came in after the paper had been written. It did not form a part of my uh, analysis. Um, But the measurements are there, and they are in cut stone, and they're precise. So the thing I was doing this week was going back and looking at some of the history of this. And part of the problem I found was, okay, when was the royal Egyptian cubit? Because that's what brought me into the story, the royal Egyptian cubit. When did it begin to be used and when did it end? And I found that it was in the third or fourth dynasty, which puts it back at the period of time around Khufu. So there is no problem there. And it lasted until the 26th dynasty uh, when there was an incursion, Persians in a conflict.
2: Hmm. And
8: at that point, the thing stopped. What I also learned uh, was the fact that there were two basic measurements. One was the royal king's cubit, if you will, which is the process they apparently used for land surveying and for official buildings.
0: You know, Daryl, hang, hang on a second. We have a slight okay. uh, production problem. Can Thea <clears throat> you need to go back to last week, Daryl's appearance, and borrow the hieroglyph uh, from there and put it on – Tonight's page with a link to him, and just let us know when it's available, because part of our discussion is going to center around this amazing hieroglyph that was presented. I guess as a follow-on conversation to your research on the pyramid itself, Daryl um, some yes. some some time ago. Okay, while while she's doing that, uh, continue, please. Uh,
8: so I was concerned about the historical significance of this. When did the royal Egyptian cubit first appear? Apparently and how long was it used? And what I've been able to discern, and it's still a matter of study, is that there were two basic systems of measurements in Egypt, and one of them was basically suited for measuring barley and wheat and other things, and that was rather a common shipping type of uh, utilization. And then there were the uh, royal or official measurements, uh, which beginning about the third or fourth dynasty were used for surveying land, and, again, for the building of uh, of Pharaoh's buildings, structures. At least that's what I've so far been able to find out. Obviously, they're dating the Great Pyramid, period of Khufu, which is about 2,500 B.C., in, in round numbers. And so it was there. Well, when I began to do the analysis, of course, I came in on the most astonishing thing of all, and that's the fact that the royal Egyptian cubit Is formulated using a 440 hertz or cycles per second tone, and it's a wavelength, and that boggles my imagination because uh, it takes an accurate measurement of time and things of this nature. Okay,
0: since people may have missed because we have people falling in and falling out of the wheelbarrow all the time, why don't you give us a brief précis of your question? And then your answers in terms of measurements of the pyramid, the coffer, et cetera, et cetera. All right.
8: So I had come into the problem looking for the source of the royal Egyptian cubit and that it had been stated that scholars had been looking for it for 4,000 years and not <laughs> been able to discern that source. Uh, I was curious, and I looked at it, and I followed a trail of bread clums, crumbs are clues, and what – impressed upon me was that there was only one major artifact that was originally found in the Great Pyramid, and that was the coffer, the stone coffer, the granite coffer, in the King's Chamber. Uh, It was the only artifact there. There were no mummies. There were no treasures. There were no hieroglyphs painted in all the walls, but that stone coffer was there in the King's Chamber. The other thing that I came across was that the King's Chamber was constructed very precisely to vibrate. To actually to have a harmonic and that to me was an astonishing statement and then looking at the coffer itself it was discerned that it was cut from a block of Aswan granite but oddly enough it wasn't seemingly shaped to hold a coffin of a pharaoh it was carved from a block of granite um, a specific size and then it was literally somehow bored out uh, and half of the volume was removed so that there was a resonant chamber form. And what I found was Paul Horn, the music you were playing, had been in that king's chamber and recorded music, and he had struck the inside of that coffer with the palm of his hand and was able to measure its resonant frequency, which turned out to be, in his measurement, 300 and... Uh, I mean, 438 hertz, or just basically short of 440 hertz. And that keyed my thinking, because here we have a resonant chamber, a resonant stone coffer that had no apparent purpose. And I also knew that the basic dimensions of the Great Pyramid uh, was 440 units by 440 units, those units being the uh, units of the Royal Egyptian Cubit. And in looking at this, uh, I tried to find out, well, where is this 440 coming in? What, what vibrational sense did it make? And it was through a series of examinations and pondering the problem that I noted the relationship existed between the wavelengths of a 440 hertz signal and standard air conditions. Um, and, of course, velocity of sound varies with pressure and temperature, et cetera. But there was that relationship, and it came out that the wavelength of the 440-hertz signal was around 30 inches, and the royal Egyptian cubit was measured at a little around 20 inches and fractional parts thereof. So what I noted when I compared the ratio is we had a precise two-thirds relationship, and two-thirds relationship are significant because the Egyptians tended to work in whole fractions like one-half, one-quarter one thirty second etc but two-thirds is something that they recognize but this two-thirds relationship was there and it definitely appeared that the um measurement of the grand of the great pyramid i'm, I'm sorry the measurement of the royal egyptian cubit a unit length of two-thirds a, rate of, a fraction if you will, two-thirds of the wavelength of the 440-hertz signal.
0: Yeah, Daryl, if I can cut in. <clears throat>
8: That's kind of remarkable, I thought.
0: Hang on. Someone is typing. Please mute all your mics if you're not on the air. Continue, Daryl, please. Okay.
8: So we ended up with what appeared to be a very, very, very close and tight approximation of a uh, measurement. Uh, and, of course, bear in mind, I'm using a standard velocity of sound that was taken off the web. That's not something I computed. It was my my white paper gives a reference of where that came from, but it was tight. I mean, it's very very tight.
0: Well, it's in what so two was, two cycles per second?
8: That's correct. The four thirty eight was the uh, actual vibration of the stone coffer, then it related then to an Egyptian royal cubit, which is measured at twenty point six two six inches, which also happens to be two thirds of the wavelength of a 440 hertz signal. So there was a direct relationship from a 440 hertz wavelength uh, to the actual measurement of the Egyptian royal cubit, uh, which is 20.626. That's one of a series of approximations, but it's the one which I found in a standard reference, which is also in the paper listed. Uh, What happened there, as I started looking at it and relating that information to the dimensions of the Great Pyramid, it became rather apparent that what I was dealing with here was an equation, and I called it the equation in stone, and basically what it amounted to was the 440 being the frequency being multiplied by uh, a wavelength, which is the wavelength of a 440 hertz signal, uh, gave us basically a velocity, and then that was multiplied by that two-thirds and I realized that you also had four sides of the pyramid, so that made eight-thirds. And this is rather confusing to me. I, okay, fine, we have that. It does mean anything. And it suddenly occurred to me that a velocity is correlated uh, to, uh, you know, literally a velocity. And if you multiply it by time, you get distance. And the realization that a distance might be involved... Led me to try to find out, okay, what time interval might we be talking about? Took me back to the coffer and the 440, trying to understand where that came from. And in doing that, I noticed the fact that we had time. Uh, We were dealing with something odd. Cycles per second, 440 hertz, if you will, means cycles per second. That means somebody is measuring a frequency in units of seconds and fractions thereof. And I, I was deeply puzzled, and I still am puzzled, how in the third or fourth uh, dynasty, uh, <laughs> they could be measuring velocities uh, using fractional parts of a second and doing this in in a manner which boggles well, my imagination.
0: As we said last week, you can't do it without a clock, a exactly. good clock.
8: An instrumentation.
0: Not a, um, not a water clock, not a balance thing. Nah, certainly not. <laughs> no, it's got to be like a chronometer, like an 18th-century clock.
8: And this led me to the question of who were the builders? Uh, I, you know, if, if indeed it started in the 3rd or 4th dynasty, we're looking at about 2500 B.C., but how in the world did they come up with an accurate measurement? And bear this in mind, they took a block of raw Aswan granite, they sawed that out, they hollowed it out, somehow, to mm. where when you strike it with the palm of your hand, it vibrates at, at basically 440. And the question was, why 440? And of course, I came back to this velocity business and, and looking for a time. And for a while, I was stymied. I knew that the king's chamber was based on ratios. For example, it's measured by 10 by 20 Egyptian royal cubits. Uh, additionally, uh, it, it, the whole chamber vibrates with resonance. Um, one gentleman who was in there creating sound was terrified and had to shut down all of his gear and ran for his life. He said he did not want to be the first person in the 20th century to be buried in the Great Pyramid. Mm. So the oscillation, and the vibration was that essential. But anyway, going back to the timing, I went back to the 440 and looked at that and tried to find a source that would help me find a time reference. And it came out that it occurred to me that if you take the 24 hours and multiplied by 60 and r12 etc you you can come up with different numbers one of those numbers was 14 uh, 40 if you will in other words if you drop the first digit you ended up with the last three digits 440 the same as the frequency and i'm saying is this a clue is this a clue
0: another level um, of encoding as it were
8: yes exactly is this a, something i can use so I took the time and looked at it and ran the equations out using 24 hours, and it seemed to work, but it was wrong. I came up with the, the – it didn't seem to fit. But I then remembered that the, uh, the floor of the pyramid and, and the king's Chamber was, again, two to one, and we were also talking about harmonics and looking at uh, the process of octaves and the analysis of octaves and that the whole king's chamber did resonate at a a particular frequency. So I looked at that and said, okay. I looked at the equation of octaves and the definition of it and realized I was dealing with a half and a doubling of frequencies to get that octave bandwidth. So I said to myself, well, maybe if I took half of 24 hours and looked at 12, that that would give me the, the time I'm looking for. And I ran those equations out and I was astonished Because when I ran the equations out, uh, what I ended up with is nowhere. And it it just didn't work until I realized that I was not dealing with the coefficient, that two-thirds coefficient. And I work all the equations out in the paper. But when you apply the coefficient, then you end up with the value of the circumference of the Earth to very, very precise levels. Mm. In other words, literally speaking, when you apply the coefficient to the velocity, which is indicated by the wavelength and the frequency, you actually give the accurate accurate measurement of the Earth to, I think, within about 0.5% of what NASA today says it is. So it's an extremely precise measurement. uh, And you're looking at that and wondering, okay, Uh, this is just fine and dandy. Uh, What do you do with it? And that's where basically I am now. Uh, The issue of the hieroglyph was something which came up later. And I found that the hieroglyph is in four segment parts. And I was basically interested in the last component part. Uh, There is, I'm sure Barbara may be able to give you a name for that part, but to my eye, Mind you, I'm blind, so I can't see a thing. But from the way it was described to me, uh, my nephew having taken a paperclip and literally bent it to represent that hieroglyphic uh, component, it struck me, it felt like a sine wave. And I'm saying to myself, wouldn't that be ideal? If if part of the hieroglyph was indeed the representation of a sine wave, which would be representative of a a 440 hertz signal, and that was the clue. That was there. That was in front of everybody all the time. Anyway, that's that's where I think we were in discussing the hieroglyph. Does that make sense?
0: It certainly does. I mean, this is all about encoding standards that are invariant through time because the speed of sound has not changed on the Earth uh, for you know millennia, many many millennia. If even by more than a fraction of a percent, it's based on density temperature, et cetera, et cetera, which are kind of invariant.
8: Well, what I did is I used the numbers which are actually carved into the stone in the pyramid and ran a reverse computation. And in reversing the computation, actually computing the velocity, which they must have used, it was only five feet per second difference than that standard which I pulled off the
0: internet.
2: hmm So it did was I, close.
7: Did you hear about the uh, hieroglyph?
0: Well, well I'm, 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 I'm kind of waiting for Conthea to get it posted before we talk about it, because without a picture, you know, you can't describe it.
7: Well, you've just been talking about it.
0: <laughs> Barbara, dear. Thank you.
8: Okay. Keep going, I, don't purport, I don't purport to be uh, an archaeologist, nor have I studied hieroglyphic forms. So I'm only saying what the impression was I had of oh, well. feeling the wire.
0: Okay,
6: Uh, I'm sorry,
0: Daryl, Ron dropped, he's back now with us. Can Thea, how close are we to getting the uh, Daryl's hieroglyph posted on in Radio with Pictures?
2: Soon. Okay.
0: Okay, all right, I'll tell you what, Um, why don't you describe, and then when when we get it posted, people can go look, but it's so astonishing that I think Barbara's right, we should bring it into the conversation now. Well, again, like
8: I say, it's Based upon a blind guy feeling a bent of a bent
0: um,
8: clip, so there's that. But it, the the impression was, it wouldn't it be remarkable if they described that component based upon their knowledge of a sine wave sound signal?
0: Okay, and then did Brian actually find you this hieroglyph?
8: The it was uh, sent to me. By somebody who had read the. By paper. somebody who had read the. By paper. somebody who had read the. By paper. somebody who had read the. By
0: somebody who had read the. Bible oh my gosh Oh my gosh We have an transient regression. Daryl.
2: Yes. Hello.
0: Daryl here. Hello. Daryl Uh oh. Daryl Uh oh. We're getting an echo. We're getting an echo. Someone's got their mic open. Someone's got their mic open. Someone's got their mic open. Okay. 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 Uh we're still getting it. Okay, we're still getting it. We're still Well, that's better. Okay, Cynthia, it's in it's in Daryl's section for last Saturday. Uh I'm sorry, Sunday, Sunday. Um and it's a, it's a big hieroglyph. It's like, I think you had two items and it's the number 2 item, I think. Being broadcast? Yes. Okay, good. Good. Okay. All right, Daryl, unmute. Ah, she's found it. Daryl, are you there? Hello, Daryl? Daryl? Hmm, he needs to unmute. Brian, are you available?
7: I could comment on the hieroglyphics. Yeah, why don't you, while
0: we're we're trying to get Daryl back, sorry for the technical problems, folks, but this is done on the fly, live radio. So, yes, go ahead. Go ahead, Barbara.
7: Right. Okay, so after uh, the program last time, um, I mean, I'm going to be talking about other things here uh, in a bit, in the second hour, but uh, after the program last time, which I listened to the whole thing, I was very excited about Daryl's program. And uh, as you know, Richard, uh, tried to get in touch, and, and uh, you gave him my number, and he immediately called. And we've had literally hours of conversation, <laughs> like two how computers going back and forth. So I'm just going to comment now on that hieroglyph because that's what brought, brought my greatest attention to his paper. And the if people could look at the hieroglyph, and I'll also describe it to you, the hieroglyph for the Great Pyramid has four sub-hieroglyphs sub-hier- in it. Two of those hieroglyphs are of the most importance to me, Uh, and I've done some research on it and uh, talked about it with Daryl on the phone since the last program. The one that really drew my attention is not the wavy lines, um, which, by the way, that hieroglyph does not represent a sine wave. It very consciously represented water um, to the ancient Egyptians. But the the one of the four sub-hieroglyphs In the overall hieroglyph for the Great Pyramid, that really drew my attention is the arm. And if you look at that, one of those four hieroglyphs, you will see that it's that the it's crooked at the elbow. And so basically it is a representation, even though it uh, it stands for like all of the hieroglyphs, it stands for a phoneme or a unit of uh, of human speech like I or E or I or, K, you know, a, a, a phoneme. Um, but it, but iconically, it represents how they arrive or sometimes arrived at the cubit itself, which was from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger on a man, on a male human. And so um, I was very excited about that. And in one of my conversations on the phone with Daryl, um, I mentioned to him because in the program I was very excited to hear that 440 hertz cycles per second is the note A, and it turns out this may be a coincidence. It may not.
0: Okay, hang on, hang on. Cynthia, not- in her incredible—I don't know how she does this. She's able to post in my section, item number 14, in Radio Pictures. Daryl's hieroglyph, the Great Pyramid hieroglyph, and in it we see literally a sine wave, multiple sine waves, all linked together in a bar with a beginning and an end.
7: Well, but that hieroglyph represented water to the ancient Egyptians. So I want to propose
0: here. But water that as we... a wave is a wave form.
7: I understand that, but allow me to finish what I was almost done saying. Okay. Because it's extremely important what I found and communicated to Daryl by phone after the last program. And that is that the, the hieroglyph of the arm, it's called the forearm by Egyptologists. Um, it stands for, believe it or not, the phoneme, the human speech unit A. And oh. And 440 cycles per second Stands for the note. A. Of course,
0: yes, yes, and that's oh. the figure in the hieroglyph on the right-hand side of the graphic.
7: That's correct. Now let me let me propose something. I think we need, as I recall from my physics, it's been a long time. I got A pluses in physics, but I've forgotten it all, right? Um, but as I recall, the speed of sound is different in different mediums. I think we need to measure the speed of sound. Of a 440 hertz signal in water.
0: No, disagree. Okay, Daryl, come on, come on. Tell us why.
8: Tell us why. The velocity of the velocity and sound of water is very high,
0: very high. But is and, it a um, har? It could it be a harmonic?
8: Well, it's, the velocity of sound is a function of temperature and the elastic. Excuse me. the the elasticity of the medium it's going through. Right. And again, the wavelength we're discussing here is keyed to a 440 hertz signal, and that would be different in water than it is in air.
0: Of course it would, yes, yes.
8: So it does correspond to the wavelength in air. Uh, I did not measure it in seawater or freshwater, but the correlation to air is complete. Uh, in terms of its accuracy and its precision, and also in the correlation of the wavelength multiplied by the coefficients to the circumference of the Earth. All these values are interlocking. And as you said uh, yourself, Richard, there is no X in the equation. Yeah, exactly. I
7: understand that. I'm just pointing out that that other uh, squiggly line does represent water to the (laughs) ancient Egyptians.
8: Okay. Well, I don't know whether it did or did not. It felt like yeah. a sine wave to me, but nevertheless, the the math is not dependent upon the higher. Well, waves.
0: remember, a wave is a wave is a wave. The medium, exactly. I mean, <clears throat> uh, um, you know, Egyptologists have attributed it to water because they can't think of the Egyptians as having a clock standard and being able to measure speed of sound, etc. So they're thinking of waves in a medium which you can see, which is water. But we know that Egyptologists are limited in their translations of hieroglyphs into modern languages. Richard, yes, Ron,
6: can uh, can I toss in a comment? Yeah, by all means. Yeah, out of yeah. yeah, this one. But the uh, yeah, no, Barbara, yeah, Barbara is absolutely right about how how clearly and specifically identified that is, that hieroglyph is with water. It's uh, now they they did have metaphorical uses. And the easiest way to relate the hieroglyphs is to think of them like rebuses. Uh They're not always a direct direct transliteration or a picture of a sound, you know. But think of, think of a rebus, you know, like a like a, a bumblebee, and that stands for the word bee. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the simplest thing in the world. then um, because they didn't call them bees. Anyway. I'm glad you defined rebus for those <clears throat> of us that haven't heard of. Sorry, a
2: while. Just...
6: yeah, but it's um anyway that's uh yeah that's there are metaphorical uses and i keep thinking of some, of an example of it that's at that gobekli tepe that has nothing to do with what we're doing here so i didn't want to mention it but just uh yeah no I, I i'd side with barbara on that one i do not think that it's a uh, sine wave they didn't that kind of abstract i can't think of another example in hieroglyphics not that i'm an,
0: uh well we don't have to reach because again the forearm according to Barbara and according to Budge and others, has the dual meaning has has the dual meaning of A and we know A frequency is four forty. So it's it's right and this is the description of the Great Pyramid anchored in the hieroglyph to A, right?
7: That's correct. Then yeah. you
0: know, that's all they wrote, Daryl, you are totally, totally confirmed.
7: Right, well, you're confirmed, I, I, you're confirmed from yet another direction through the through the uh hieroglyph.
8: I'm not sure I understood, understood you, Barbara. Can you say that again, please?
7: Well, uh Richard said it as well, and I think so did Ron. Um this is just further confirmation of your oh. correlations.
2: Oh, okay. Um, well thank you. Yeah. Yes.
7: Well, you can't get well, any more authoritative
0: than ancient, you know, uh, utterances of the time, expressions yeah. for the pyramid that incorporate the note A. Come on! Well, I can
8: believe that's remarkable, and thank you very much for that contribution, uh, uh, Barbara. I I am grateful for that. I I am I'm sitting here still trying to digest the significance of what this indicates. Uh, as I said last week, uh, it wasn't until the 1700s that we had uh, German physicists able to accurately do what is obvious in the uh, measurements on the Great Pyramid. So that's, that's a whole lot of time where people mm. did not understand what they were looking at when they looked at these measurements. And it's precise. Uh, the stone that was cut in that king's chamber was cut out of hard granite, and they were working in extremely tight resolution to uh, a hundredth of an inch. It's amazing. And again, bear in mind, to say 440 cycles per second, which is the frequency, uh, I don't think you can measure it in centimeters or yards or cubits or anything else. That's a 440 hertz signal, Mm. (laughs) and it's in cycles per second, and it, it, it all measures out. And it it ties directly to a knowledge of the circumference of the Earth. And we all know that the pyramid was built precisely at 30 degrees north latitude. So the the whole thing here is um, they knew what they were doing, and they were working from known, hard science. And it just doesn't fit, in my estimation, that what we believe was the scientific level of understanding, uh, 2500 B.C. It's a complete anomaly. But it, the darn thing is sitting there on that plateau and it, it, it's an equation cut in stone. It's an archive. It is a database and it's, trans, it's, it's it survived 4,000 years to reach us to figure this out and, and I'm still somewhat amazed by the whole thing, to be honest with you.
0: See, there are two levels of this which intrigues the heck out of me. One is you have John West who wrote some very definitive books on ancient Egypt. Uh, Serpent in the sky was one of them. Um, he led tours and talked to people about all kinds of arcana about Egypt that no other tour guides ever even even approached because they looked at it kind of like a monolithic thing. And he looked at it multidimensionally. It was, it was John who basically, I think first said that, um, Egypt was not so much an invention as a legacy. So you have that iteration. You have the idea that you have modern in the context of 4,000 years ago, Um, you know, masons and stone craft people and uh, experts in in architecture being heir to an ancient knowledge base. Well, that doesn't do you any good if you're building something contemporaneously 4,000 years ago, which requires incredible, precise manufacture of artifacts, the coffer, and tuning of the artifacts to a precise frequency, because you've got a whole level of industrial development that there is zero evidence for on the plateau. And people have looked and looked and looked, and they haven't found it. So you've got two enigmas. One is the heritage of information, and then how contemporaneous builders of the pyramid Four thousand years ago, give or take, by the star sightings, the shafts, the you know procession, and all of that were able to replicate technologically the heritage that they obviously were following like a guidebook, like a manual like a like a like an instruction set. so you've got clocks of incredible precision thousands of years before clocks supposedly were invented on the planet Earth of that precision. And you've got it nailed, Daryl, because there's no other way to get that standard encoded in granite unless there was a technology which could do
3: both.
2: Well, it's
8: it's the only logical conclusion you can reach. And it's like I say, I didn't come to explain how they did it or (laughs) when it was built. But all I can do is looking at those measurements, they say what they say and it, it's mathematically what it is. And I'm really grateful to Barbara that she was able to bring in her understanding of hieroglyphics to help clarify this. Uh, it, it, there are some things that I am curious about, but it doesn't belong in this discussion. But thank you, Barbara, very much for that input.
0: Okay, I want to do a segue because we blew past the break at the bottom of the hour and i am decided to let it go. Because now yeah. it's time Now it's time to segue into the Sphinx, the interior of the Sphinx, and the Tomb of Osiris story, Daryl. So you start us off with what you heard, then we'll segue to Barbara, who has been there.
8: Yes, in the white paper, I mentioned uh, Paul Horn, uh, who was of course the man who played the flute in the King's Chamber, uh, in addition to which, I included a reference to a paper made a decade or so after that, Uh, and uh, Richard, you mentioned you know the man and who he was working for when he made those measurements. But he went into the king's chamber, and he took measurements, and he was the one that ran in panic out of the king's chamber because he was afraid he was going to fall down on him because of the harmonics that were happening because he had amplified signals inside. But he stated in his paper that I quoted from that he had been inside the Sphinx uh, I and, and actually inside it, and he implied beneath it. But at another point, he spoke of going down a steel ladder uh, into a large area in which there apparently had been a floor that collapsed, and there were bones mixed in, human remains, and it was an astonishing record because – None of these things have I come across about people being under the Sphinx or in the plateau. That's always been a mum, I'm sorry, a mum story, uh, not too frequently talked about. But then, of course, I talked to Barbara, which is wonderful, and she says she has personally gone down that stainless steel ladder, and I'd love to hear the story.
0: So, Barbara, start at the beginning. How did you get there? Why were you in Egypt? How did you get into the Sphinx? Did you cozy up to Zahi, et cetera, et cetera?
7: Yeah, if if you'll allow me to, uh, in the first hour, I was, I probably bit off all of my fingernails wanting to make a few comments. And uh, I would appreciate being able to do that really quickly and then get into the tomb of Osiris. Okay. And and have you on there. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is one of the reasons I really wanted to be in that first hour is because it was all guys and uh, you really needed some gender balance for the body. <laughs> um, we do know that the star in Orion's belt represented Orion's dagger. And how do we know that? We know that because the Pharaoh has uh, had an actual, the actual pharaohs had an actual dagger and touch dagger, is actually in the Egyptian Museum very soon. I'm sure it's already been moved to the Grand Egyptian Museum, which should open next month sometime, right by the pyramids in the Sphinx. And I'm going to go. I think we should all go. But uh, the amazing thing about Tut's dagger, um, that we know that it links to that star, uh, is that it is made, the blade of it is made out of a meteorite. It's an amazing object, and just look it up. In fact, I'm going to send Cynthia a link to a video that shows it and talks about it. Um, The next thing is when you talked about in either the next show or some show soon, you're going to be looking for uh, the place of goddess in Cesaro Crater anywhere else on Mars. As you know, Richard, I've already emailed you after a few shows ago um, proposing Uh, based upon the revelation that I received when I was in the White House in 1982, um, I believe that what we need to do is, both on Earth at the Giza Plateau, as you know, and also on Mars, um, is to follow the line that goes through the two major uh, uh, pyramids at Giza. You follow that line uh, literally out to an actual GPS point, both on Earth and on Mars, and you dig. And that's called the Sirius Point, and I believe that that is where you are going, that is where you are going to find an amazing temple of Isis, who is, of course, the great goddess uh, of the ancient Egyptian pantheon. Um, so, so it's really, really important for people to understand the three pyramids at Giza um, the revelation I received in 1982, and it was a straight download from the from the source, uh, was that the three pyramids of Giza not only uh, were intended by the builders. Wait, wait,
0: wait! wait. When you said download from the source, what source?
7: I'm talking about. You can call it God. You can talk it. Call it the force. You can call it the source. You can call it whatever you want. But it was a direct knowing, and we've talked about this, Richard. I was sitting at my Computer, yeah, but well, the problem
0: office. is we have new people who have not heard this, so you need to reiterate. Go ahead.
7: Right, right, right. So I was sitting at my, uh, my Selectric typewriter over the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House in 1982, when suddenly I simply stopped. And I suddenly had what I'm sure many people would call a revelation if you were, re- if you were born in a church. Uh, I call it uh, a download from the source. Um, you could call it uh, you could call it a revelation, and what channeling? that revelation was. I'm sorry, what?
6: Is it channeling?
7: Well, I don't call it that, um, oh. but anyway, I call it a revelation, and okay. it was a direct knowing with a hundred with a sense of hundred percent certainty. If you could put more than a hundred percent certainty, that's what it was emotionally, and it was a very clear message. The three stars in the belt of Orion were intended by the builders to, re- I mean, the three pyramids of Giza were intended by the builders to represent the three stars in the belt of Orion, but they're not what really matters. Those three pyramids, as important as they are, and they're phenomenally important, draw a line between the largest two and at the place where if you literally translated the map of the sky down onto the pyramids then there would be an actual GPS point that would be the Sirius point that represents Sirius that the ancient Egyptians identified with Isis. And there will be an Isis temple there. And if we're right that those three mountains or whatever they are uh, in Jezero Crater, if they in fact do map through the three stars in the belt of Orion, then there will be a Sirius point if it was intentional. Also, on Mars, as I know, there is either within Cairo or out in the desert just beyond you can map, you can map the Orion stars uh, going one of two ways so there's you 're going to find an Isis temple at the Sirius point, one of those two places. Okay. okay, let me stop
0: you there for a second because mm-hmm. if if you look at Orion and i 've looked at Orion an awful lot over. My lifetime. Um, Sirius does not align with the belt stars now, but it did because of something called proper motion, the motion of stars of these suns through the galaxy in three dimensions as we're moving around the center of the galaxy and they're orbiting too, you have these alignments. So I actually, many years ago, I think it was around 2000, did the calculation as to when Sirius would have aligned with Anilem and Alnatec, which are the two brightest stars in the belt, and it was 113,000 years ago, which fits certainly within the window of transitions from Mars to Earth that we have been talking about in my, my work and on this show many, many, many times. So the only problem is you have a line, and if you, if, you, if you look at Sirius in terms of the sky, there's one line that would go from the alignment of the two stars in the belt to where Sirius would have crossed that line 113,000 years ago. That should be the place you look or dig. And when you say temple, it may be a library, it may be a cache, it may be something not ornate at all. It may be something unrecognizable architecturally, but something important because the alignment will make it what it is to represent ISIS and Sirius.
7: Right. Yeah, I I know that you've done that uh taking the procession back for a precise alignment with the two major stars in the belt of Orion. From my point of view, uh I'm interested in finding this place on planet Earth. And for for that, you don't need uh the alignment to be perfect with those two largest pyramids because you can you can find it uh using uh space archaeology and even over 113,000 years, this GPS point in the Giza plateau or inside Cairo is going to be not that far from where it would have been 113,000 years ago. So I'm just interested in finding it, and I know that there's something phenomenally important there to be. Um, so that's the major point I wanted to get across. The other important point I want to get across, and then I'll get into the tomb of Osiris, which is an amazing place that I have physically been. Um, The other major thing I want to get across is that I had this revelation in 1982. Uh, Bouval had his revelation looking up at the sky in Cairo, right by the pyramids in 1983. And he published his book in 1984. When I had my revelation in 1982, uh, I realized that I needed to record it. And I needed to get it to somebody, and so you know, I just asked the question in my head, and the answer came: uh, send it to the United Nations. And without going into the details, that's what I did. I wrote it up. I wrote up the fact that the uh, that the uh, the two main pyramids more or less point to Sirius, but that the Sirius point is an incredibly important archaeological dig point and that it needs to happen and that it needs, and that I believe that we would find the the hall of records. We would find some incredibly important, you're correct, Richard. We would find some incredibly important documents uh, there as well. So I did record that and uh, I sent it to Donald Keyes, who was someone whom I had met. Uh, I believe it was at Lawrence Rockefeller's house. Uh, And um, so I sent it to Donald Keyes and other uh, people that I found, uh, Uh, At the United Nations. Now, whether Robert Duvall got that letter, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, But what does matter in 1984, only two years later, when the Orion mystery came out, you can imagine I probably got the first copy that was published. Mm. And I read it like, you know, eating like a hungry person eating dinner. (laughs) And to, to my shock and amazement, he doesn't mention the most important part of my revelation. He completely leaves out the serious point. And a few years back I went to the Contact in the Desert conference.
0: Right. In, in Joshua Tree.
7: In Joshua Tree. I went there. And I and I went there for the express purpose of meeting Bouval and asking him why. He left that out of the Orion mystery and never talks about it. Hasn't talked about it since in any of his other books. And so I went to his talk, and I was in the front row, and when it came to the Q's and A's, he had asked everybody to stand up, because it was a very large auditorium, 600 or, 70, seven, six or 700 people, and uh, he had asked everyone to, if they asked the question, to stand up and kind of turn around so everybody could hear it. And so I did that, and I mentioned that I had had this revelation In addition to the serious point being what really mattered, not the three stars so much, even though they're very important, but the serious point is what really matters about the goddess. And I'm telling you, this is on videotape. When I was done with a question asking him, why don't you mention this? He went into, he started talking and it was as if I'd never asked the question. Hmm. This man is covering that up. Hmm. Okay. Uh, We don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot.
0: Barbara, I don't want to blow past the break at the top of the hour because those are hard breaks. But I need to ask this. When you had your inspiration, um, imprint, vision, whatever information download you had in 82 sitting there near the Oval Office, had you been to Egypt yet? No. Ah.
7: I went to Egypt four years ago in February of 19, of 2017.
0: So this just first, came out of the
7: blue? Like you're, you're totally sitting... out of the blue. I had I was always fascinated. I've always, as you know, and I've sent this to you, I call it my spiritual bio. And I've sent that to you whether you've had a chance to read it or not in the past for previous programs about Egypt that we've done, Richard. But in my spiritual bio, which I could send again, if we're going to have a a program on the goddess, trying to find the goddess point on Mars and Earth, um, we should definitely uh, include that in my items. But the bottom line is that my life is so synchronistic, as you know, and I'm so guided by the, what I call the source or the force, that I have been guided to Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their eldest daughter, Scota, after whom Scotland is named. and. It's as if I lived at that time or might have even been Skoda. Who knows mm. uh, if reincarnation is true. But I'd always, I'd, I knew everything you could have met, you could read about that period of time and Amarna and Akhenaten changing the capital of ancient Egypt to Amarna. So I already had studied about Egypt, but had I ever gone there? No. Not
0: Someone's making a lot of noise. Please mute. Thank you. Okay. Right. Um. We're, we're Obviously, we're going to extend this across the hour because we've got another hour and whatever minutes left. So we'll just, you know, let this unfold. But I need to ask some questions. Yeah. You have always been interested then in Egypt, right? Ancient Egypt. Always. Okay. Always. So you're infused with this. You're sitting there doing something very metonymic for the Reagan administration in the White yes. House. And suddenly – this 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 imprint of information comes to you, or had you been thinking about Egypt? Had you been talking to someone about Not Egypt? Not at all. Okay.
7: Not at all. It came totally out of the blue.
0: Okay. And did you write it down? You're sitting at a Selectric, so I presume you had paper. and.
7: Yes, as I said, I immediately typed it up. Okay. And uh, it was either that afternoon or the next morning before I got to the White House that I mailed it. To Donald Keyes and others at the United Nations.
0: Now, who was Donald Keyes? You keep mentioning him.
7: Um, you know, it's been so long. I believe, I believe he wrote a book called Planethood. Um, he was he was um, someone who was close to Lawrence Rockefeller. Uh, I have been invited before during the transition between the Carter and Reagan administrations. I was very high up in the transition team as well as in the administration. Um, and, uh, so I was invited to Lawrence Rockefeller's house and that's where, as I recall, I met him. Mm. Um, but anyway, when the thought came to me, where should I send this? And the, the reason for the question was I wanted to record it so that it would, it wouldn't just be my say so later. Um, so I dated it, I recorded it, I got a return receipt,
2: <laughs> um,
7: and I sent it to Donald Keys and others, I think to the secretary general, And I sent it to the United Nations because I felt that it was that that the serious point in what we find there is information that belongs to all of humanity.
0: Which leads directly to my next and really critical question, your buddy buddies. We have the photographs on your on your section of radio pictures with Zahi. Have you brought this up with Hawass?
7: It's interesting. I have, and I'm not about to. Um, See, that's
0: uh, why I asked the question.
7: Right. No, Zawi Hawas would probably never allow me on the Giza Plateau again if, I, if it came out of my mouth. But I did raise it with our tour guide, um, which, uh, you know, after the uh, bottom of the hour, I know we're going to get into, uh, and it won't, it won't take me long, um, to go into my items and radio with pictures so that people can actually see um, where Zawi Hawas arranged for me to personally go along with bodyguards and closing down a whole section of the Giza Plateau to allow me to go down into the Tomb of Osiris. Uh, and the reason that I chose that particular tour, I did mention all this to Jihan Hussein, who was the PhD Egyptologist, born and raised in Cairo, who was the actual tour guide uh, along with Zawi Hawas who would join the tour periodically, but wasn't with the tour the entire time for the whole two and a half or three weeks. I did tell her, and she was absolutely galvanized by the information. And she's the one who said to me, and I already knew it, whatever you do, don't mention this to Zawihawa. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, well, have we you, let,
0: let's continue because we've got about two minutes till the top yeah. of the hour, and then we'll just continue. Um, yeah,
7: okay. So I'll let you know. Apart from items,
0: apart from Zahi, is there any other political entities? Because Zahi's kind of been moved around on the chessboard. He's no longer the key, captivating, censoring figure that he used to be. Is there anybody else in Egypt who would be interested in finding? What's at the end of that alignment, the serious ISIS, you know, cash or library right. or whatever?
7: Well, the bottom line, and this is the kind of guidance, actually, um, and I can tell you why I believe this from my experience personally with Zahi four years ago. Um, even though Zahi Hawass is not technically head of antiquities any longer under al-Sisi, he might as well be, and I experienced that personally. Because he was head of antiquities under Mubarak, and Al Sisi was Mubarak's head of intelligence. Right. So, so Zahi Hawass still whatever Zahi Hawass wants to do, he gets to do. And if Zahi Hawass doesn't want something to happen with the current official head of antiquities, it doesn't happen. So, in my opinion, uh, this is not going to be uncovered. This what's at the serious point. In Giza, is not going to be uncovered as long as Dari Hawat lives, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Okay.
0: Well, but that's kind of linear, given that we're looking at, and I'm going to be talking about it in a couple of minutes, everything's hitting the fan now. Nothing is linear. Nothing is projected. The trend lines are all asymptotic. Aren't you a little more optimistic that amazing things can happen on this front if NASA's on Mars literally looking at the ancient origins of the Giza geometry?
7: Well, of course. I mean, these, these, what happens, what is discovered on Mars, and what is discovered on the Earth, it's a positive feedback loop, and they will, they will feed into each other. I mean,
0: what if, for instance, Little Ingenuity, which had been off doing something kind of sight unseen, no one knows what it's doing because they're not telling us now, what if it's doing exactly what I projected, you know, several weeks ago, which it's doing a survey mission, and it's flying through the air above Jezero in the southern part of the crater, and it's looking for the ISIS temple on Mars?
7: Well, the question is, I kind of doubt that they've even thought of it, but the question is, should NASA be asked to look for it? Um, and if so, who would be the most, the best person to ask for NASA to look for it? Would that be you, Richard? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we're putting it out there. We know they listen. I mean, yeah, do
7: they? Okay. <laughs> well,
0: what we, no, we have absolute first-person witness they listen. Because years ago when I used to do uh, Bell a lot, um, I had a, a confidant there at uh, Mission Control in Houston who literally told me that they turned up Art Bell and me on, on the loudspeakers and it echoed through mission control all through the night.
2: <laughs>
0: Hold it there. We're at the other side of midnight, literally midnight here in the Land of Enchantment. Did a little editing there. And the background is Paul Horn and um, it, it sends chills when I think of what this all could represent not just for now, but for all time, for the evolution of human beings on this planet. So let me take a kind of a moment here for a parenthetical statement. Um, The Enterprise mission and the other side of midnight needs funding. I've restrained myself for week after week after week after week for basically putting it out there, but now is the time, because now is when we're in the end game. In a week and a couple of days, there's supposed to be this extraordinary Senate Intelligence Committee report commissioned by the Congress of the Department of Defense giving us a status report on the phenomenon of UFOs or in the current parlance, UAPs. I mean, where are you without an acronym? And at the same time, we see all kinds of mainstream media Leaping to the fore, coming to the ready, mentioning the unmentionable. In fact, there are some correspondents uh, I saw the other day, an NBC correspondent literally turning to the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times and saying on live network television, will you be our UFO reporter? And um, Senator Reid, Senator Harry Reid, under whom this secret Pentagon program ATIP was begun many years ago, Um, recently, as of last Friday, wrote an editorial for the New York Times, an op-ed piece for the New York Times, basically talking about how he got into this, what he saw at Area 51 that he can't talk about, all kinds of hints, hints, hints of extraordinary technology and deep black programs and all the prescinding implications of making the reality known and credible that we are not alone. And there are a variety of intelligences out there, some of whom are truly alien, and some of whom, as I've said many, many times, are members of our extended extra-human family. And all of this is coming to a point now the coin of the realm the way you make things happen the way you change history the way you make all the decades of research that we have done meaningful is please reach into your pockets go to the donate button on the other side of midnight both on your phones and on the computer on the websites and give us donate to that link whatever you can spare Because now is the end time. Now is the end game. Now is when it's going to count. And believe me, we are incredibly efficient. Look what we've been able to do over the decades without any real outside assistance except here and there. Imagine if our worldwide audience were to decide this is how they can strike a blow in whatever nation, in whichever meme, in whichever philosophy you live strike a blow for the freedom to know who and what we are on planet earth which extends far beyond the earth and frankly when it comes to ufology i'm more willing to believe in ruins and libraries and archives than in current ufonauts because remember if they're members of the human family humans or millennia have lied each other. Ruins, archives, libraries, do not lie. So if you can, please donate. Thanks. back everyone. Paul Horn there playing in the King's Chamber. So Barbara, <clears throat> this is now when you tell us how you managed to wangle Hawast into giving you a private tour of the tomb of Osiris.
7: Quite an amazing story but it's uh, part of my amazing life <laughs> uh, and I'm really honored to be able to share it tonight. Um, I, I will say that Um, As as you know, I've been drawn to ancient Egypt my entire life, especially to Akhenaten Nefertiti, and in particular, their eldest daughter, the crown princess Skota, whose uh, whose Egyptian name was Meritatin. And I won't go into that, but that's that's the background um, of my interest in Egyptology uh, and ancient Egypt. So I've always wanted to go to Egypt. And uh, one day uh, I received my National Geographic, our National Geographic here in California. And I believe it was on the back cover. Maybe it was one of the first pages. Anyway, this this really nice glossy ad for uh, an Egypt tour with Zawi Hawass, um by an outfit called Archaeological Paths. And I highly recommend them. Um, I, I realized that we all have a big problem with Zahli Halas' uh, uh, limited hangouts and obfuscations and, <laughs> and, in my opinion, outright lies. Well, about... has, he,
0: has he ever done to you what he did to me and Robert Bavall, where he said if we ever visited Egypt, either together or separately, he would have our heads cut off and thrown in the ditch by one of the main streets going out of Cairo?
7: Well, no, he didn't. He said that and... in
0: Al-Aram. It's in print.
7: <laughs> well, I, I believe you. Um... I believe you, and it's, uh, it's, probably, um, it's probably true of anyone who talks about this astroarchaeology idea, um, regardless of who it is. But no, he didn't. Um, he treated me like a princess, in fact, um, and I'm not really sure why. Well, well hang on hang on, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on.
0: Did he know about your association with the Reagan administration?
7: Not that I know of, no.
0: But you um, don't know for sure.
7: I don't know for sure. Okay. I was just as far as I know I was just someone on this tour. Um but uh, I should tell you that I signed up for archaeological Paths despite the fact that Zali Hawass was going to be involved with uh with the tours at different points. And the reason was is that with Zali Hawass you get unbelievable access. You don't get the truth about things, but you get <laughs> unbelievable access. Okay. And I can figure out the truth about things myself. Thank you very much. So um, I decided to sign up for at least for my first, uh, my first time in Egypt. And I am going to go again. We're going to get down at the end of my items. If everybody could go to my items. Because pictures are sometimes worth a trillion words. So uh, the number one in my items is a photograph of myself on this tour, archaeological past tour. Uh, with Ali uh, between the paws of the Sphinx. That was uh, we we were we arrived there at sunrise in the morning, an amazing experience. And the entire oh, don't platform. you make
0: a great looking couple?
7: <laughs> yeah, and I want to show you something amazing. Now, this is something that uh, that some of your other uh, regular team members would have noticed, but I just noticed it uh, because of the mentality that they've projected into my head. But if you notice, look at the shadow of he and me, mm-hmm. and it almost looks like the uh, the white crown of Egypt.
0: Oh, it does! It, it sure does. does.
7: Yes. So, so I should tell you that I chose archaeological paths because of Zawi Halas and because of the access that I knew or believed that I would be able to, and I did obtain uh, two uh, amazing sites that that many other people never have an opportunity to go to. Okay. So um I will just say that that at the point that this photograph was taken, um, the entire Giza plateau had not yet opened to the public. And Zawi Hawas, it was just the twenty five or thirty of us in our group that was called the Horace Group. This was what, four uh, years ago? Four years ago and this is February of twenty seventeen. This photograph was taken. And um And why so- was the
0: plateau closed?
7: Well, it was closed because Zawihawas ordered it closed, asked for it to be closed. That's the bottom line. But what
0: was the public reason?
7: There wasn't any public reason given. He, he let us know the day before over dinner that it that it would only be our tour group in the mm. entire plateau Okay. at that time. And uh, the, they also had to remove the barriers. Uh, right after we left the Giza Plateau here with the Sphinx, um, they put up the barriers. You could not get up to the Sphinx, but we were able to walk around it and touch it and pat it and do anything we wanted to do it. Okay. Um, that's the reason I went with this particular tour is my first tour and I believe he's still doing these tours under archeological paths. Now I will tell you, this was, this was like the second or the third day. And it was literally one of the three highlights of my trip, uh, four highlights of my trip. The other Highlights were, of course, inside the Great Pyramid. The third highlight was Zahi Hawass arranged for me to, um, by myself, with armed bodyguards and a driver, be taken to Amarna. And I spent an entire day in Amarna with my own tour guide uh, and two armed bodyguards with AK-47s, just in case somebody wanted to kidnap me for ransom.
0: Barbara, look, Zahi lives in the Middle East. In the Middle East, you check everybody. He absolutely had to know who you were, absolutely, unequivocally.
7: Well, it's possible. Um, I will tell you that just before this picture was taken, he whispered in my ear. It was taken by the tour photographer. He whispered in my ear, Barbara has come. Mm. Now, I found that very interesting. He may have actually had your damn memo you sent to the U.N., I don't know. I have no idea, and no, I never mentioned it to him because my guidance said not to.
0: But you didn't okay, have to. to. If, he's, if he's the guy I know, he would have checked thoroughly everybody on all of those tours, and he would have known who you were, your connections to Reagan, the UN thing, everything about you, because he leads this multiple-level dimensional life himself. What mm-hmm. he believes in public is not what he believes in private.
7: Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, absolutely true.
2: Good. He
7: knows everything about the Giza Plateau and everything else in Egypt uh, and the real story about it. And uh, he he considers himself, for whatever reason, uh, to be the gatekeeper for who knows what when.
0: Well, he may think he's reincarnated whatever, whatever.
7: Uh-huh. Yeah, remember well,
0: remember uh, Saddam Hussein thought he was, uh, what was it, Nebuchadnezzar?
7: Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, Hitler thought he was Barbarossa. God help us, you know. Mm. Uh, okay, so if we go to number two, we're going to go. We're going to go down into the shaft of Osiris now. Uh, and I should say that I, I should tell you how I got there. Um, so, so after this experience at the Sphinx, it was either that night or the next night. We were at a, the the old hotel by the pyramids in Cairo, and. Um, uh, I can't remember the name right now, but it was the most magnificent hotel in the, I've ever been in in the Some, world.
0: Something House, manna House?
7: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a yes. gorgeous
0: Victorian hotel. Gorgeous, gorgeous, um, gorgeous. It's
7: a beautiful hotel. Yeah, so that night or the next night, there was a dinner. And there were. Uh, it was a smorgasbord dinner. And Zawi Hawas had given a, 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 a talk before dinner to our group. And then we were going to have a dinner, and he was going to be at the dinner. Well, it was a smorgasbord. And there were like three or four long tables, and you just got your food and sat down someplace. You didn't know who was going to sit next to you. Well, I got my food early, and I sat down, and it wasn't long before Zowie sat to my left. Well, I thought that was a coincidence. Maybe it wasn't, given what you've said. But anyway. It's the, uh, it's
0: the, it's the Mena House.
7: The Mena house M-E-N-A the, house. M-E-N-A,
0: the incredible Victorian old, old, old hotel
7: unbelievably beautiful beautiful hotel unbelievable um so so anyway um uh, i i sat down with my food and pretty soon zoe sat to my left and then the table filled up it was a very interesting <laughs> table we had interesting conversations with the people across from us and uh there was a moment where there was a kind of pause in the conversation and I leaned over and I whispered into his eye's ear because he'd whispered into my ear. Barbara has come at the thing. <laughs> I thought, well, I could whisper into his ear. So I whispered into his ear. Hey, maybe he had a vision. <laughs> I don't know.
0: I'm telling so you, this is ear. not accidental, not coincidental. Continue.
7: Well, it certainly isn't from a synchronistic higher level. Let's put it that way. So I whispered into his eye's ear. I said, Dr. Hawass. He wanted to be called Dr. Hawass. Of Halas. course, of course. I said, Dr. Hawass, I would really appreciate being able to go to the tomb of Osiris, down his napkin really quickly. And he looked over, looked in my eyes and he said, how did you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I've, I've you know, I, I, I've studied Egypt and I've, I've, I've seen you down there on the Internet. And he said, are you serious? And I said, I, I, I felt like, big yes, I'm S-I-R-I-U-S, but I didn't. Mm. And I said, yes, I'm serious. And literally, this is how I know the pool that he has with the current official head of Egyptian antiquities under uh, al-Sisi. He literally put his, hand, his right hand up in the air, snapped his fingers, and said, Mustafa. And there was a man, an Egyptian man, at the far end of our table on the left end, and he immediately was by Zawi's side. And Zawi turned to him, and he said, make arrangements for Barbara two days from now, 48 hours, uh, or you know, two days from now. It wouldn't have been at night. That was at night. Mm -hmm. Two days from now to go to Osiris' tomb and let me know. And then he turned to me, and he said, that will cost you $1,500.
0: And I said, no problem. (laughs) Mm. Which of course, goes into his bank account
7: it probably went directly into his bank account, but i didn 't care. boy, was it worth it okay, so um, two days from two days from then, I had re- I received word from Jihan uh, Hussein, who was our uh, major tour guide, uh, where I needed to be for um, and she went with me um, uh, two days from then uh, in the morning it was i think we left around ten a m from the Mina House hotel. And we went to, if you go to number two uh, in my photographs, and I'm going to describe this for Daryl's uh, benefit, okay? Sure. Um, so, Daryl, the, the first photograph was Zai the Night, between the paws of the Sphinx, early in the morning, uh, right after the sunrise in February, 7th, in February of 2017. So, number two is the entrance to the shaft. Where you go down the metal ladders, there are multiple metal ladders, not just one, down into the Tomb of Osiris on the Giza Plateau. And that is the entrance that I went into uh, with representatives from the Department of Antiquities in Cairo uh, and with Jihan Hussein, our tour guide, uh, uh, down down those ladders and with a crew of videographers from archaeological paths. So they let me go down second, I think. They didn't want me to go down first. They wanted to be sure that they got the lights on down there. Mm-hmm. So now go to number three. Uh, in my, uh, This is the an overview um, of the first uh, photograph. Uh, this is a very important document that everybody needs to open. This is not just a photograph, but when you click on the text.
0: Oh, it says it sits, Tomb of Osiris text with photos.
7: You, right. click, on you, to, you want to click on that. On a click on that. But what you're looking at before you click on that is an aerial photograph looking down on the Sphinx. And right above it, you will see at a diagonal um, part of the causeway that goes to the middle pyramid. Behind the rump of the Sphinx, if you will, and down a little bit close to the lower right-hand corner, you will see what looks like a box. It looks like a shaft, and I am told that that is the upper part of the shaft that I went down, but that is not how I entered it. I entered it, if you go uh, vertical, if you go vertical from that box up to the, uh, to the uh, causeway, it, and if you can imagine, you enter the causeway from the upper side, and that is the image in number two. The entrance. That is the entrance. That that's the causeway. Those are the causeway stones above the entrance to where you go down the metal uh, the metal ladders to the shaft. Okay. So now, if everybody who can can please open um, that uh, number three, so that you get to the actual uh, you get to the actual document. Yeah,
0: it's a kind of a complicated thing. Microsoft wants you to join something. Just say view only because I'm doing it as you're talking.
7: Okay. Well, um, for those who aren't able to open it, I'm going to tell you what it contains for when you can open it. Uh, We've already looked at that aerial photograph of the Sphinx, and the box behind and a little bit down from the rump of the Sphinx uh, is the shaft, goes down into the shaft of Osiris. This this is the one sitting
0: out there in the middle of the sand?
7: Yes, correct. Kind of like as as
0: big as the rump, and it's got an inside, uh, outside, perimeter and inside perimeter and the inside perimeter is a dark uh, square with a little a right. hole at the top left and one on the middle right, right. okay I just want to make sure we're now that's
7: what I'm told I cannot confirm that to you what I can confirm to you is that if you take a vertical line from the middle of that box behind the rope of the sphinx and you go vertical straight up to the upper side of the causeway that is where I entered and that is the photograph number two Ah. Okay. Okay. All right. So now let me just say that from my reading, um, I believe that the that the priests of ancient Egypt, because this is an extremely ancient, an extremely ancient, uh, a tomb down there. Um, what's under the Sphinx and under the Giza Plateau almost by definition has to be older than what is visible on the plateau, that you can enter on the plateau or or touch on top of the plateau. So I believe from my reading that they believe that Osiris was an actual being, uh, that Isis and Osiris and possibly also Horus. I have some question about that, but that Osiris was an actual being. Okay, so if you, are, you have been able to open my number three and you scroll down below the aerial photograph of the Sphinx, Uh, The next thing you're going to see is a cutaway side diagram of once you uh, enter the uh, shaft, um, once you enter from number two uh, on the side of the causeway towards that box in the aerial photograph a bit, you are then going to go down the ladder to the first platform, and then you're going to go down a much longer uh, metal ladder, to the second platform this is and the golden
0: see, cutaway of the descending passages
7: exactly now in the second level down you see one two three four five six there should be seven actually yeah one two three four five six seven there were seven black stone sarcophagi they are huge one of them is now in the british Museum. wait
0: wait wait, wait. how many
7: there were seven. Originally. Seven.
0: Oh how interesting. Seven. There were
7: I believe Tetri went down there.
0: Tetrahedral um, seven.
7: <clears throat> I believe there were seven. There are now only two at that level. God knows how they could have ever gotten them out to the top.
0: Well they had but, to break them um, up.
7: I guess they'd have to. Yeah. I don't know. There are two of them there now. The lids are off of them. They are immense. They are black, stone, and there are no bodies in them. There were originally seven of them. One of them is in the British Museum. Two of them are still there. Who knows where the other four are? We do not know. Now, um, I... So, wait, wait, wait.
0: If you're saying that two of them are in the British Museum and they're whole, that means there has to be another entrance to take them out whole.
7: Well, possibly, um, and I'm I'm going to show that to you in a moment. How would you get Um, them out
0: if you didn't? If you broke them up, you'd see all kinds of seams and lots of superglue. (laughs)
7: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, um, here's the bottom line. There's only one from my reading. There's one in the Egyptian, in the uh, British Museum. Two are physically there. I was in front of them and took photographs of them with myself. Four of them are no longer there in their little cubbyhole.
0: But they were reported they were originally... originally by whom?
7: As I recall, Petrie. But I can send you the document about Good. that. Good,
0: please, please do. Yeah.
7: Okay. All right. Um, and then the next photograph down uh zawi hawass went down there uh if i recall something like gosh uh i I can't remember actually but but it's in the document i'll send you oh it's actually down below we'll get to that in a minute yeah in 2007 zawi hawass went down there and if you go back to that cutaway when you go down to the very lowest level which is down yet another metal ladder And this is a vertical metal ladder and each of the rungs are at least a foot apart. So you have to be in good shape to get down there and especially get back up again.
2: Hmm. Okay.
7: Um, I I don't think I could do it today, but I could barely do it then, but I did do it. Um, So I went down to the lowest level and the people from the department of antiquities and the film crew were down there before me having the lights turned on. And it's an amazing place because, Where that shaft goes down, you stand at the bottom of it, and you're looking towards what is on the bottom, and it's surrounded by water. The water table is there. The water table is coming up from the Nile underneath this thing. Wait, wait. This sounds
0: like Herodotus' description.
7: Yes. Yes, it does. And that is called the Tomb of Osiris, so if you notice that what they've done in this cutaway is you can see these four little obelisks in the corner
2: mm-hmm. and then
7: there is a huge sarcophagus underwater and If you scroll down to the next to the next photograph under my item three, yeah item three um when you open that document the next the next item is a photograph, and that was taken by Zawi Hawas and his crew in two thousand and seven. When they went down there and they removed the lid from the sarcophagus, there was no body in the sarcophagus. They were almost certain that there had never been a body in it because that's an incredibly heavy lid. You can see the lid up to the upper right, and the sarcophagus, the lower part of it that would have otherwise held something, uh, was simply filled with water. Are we water. talking
0: about the color photograph right below the cutaway?
7: Yes. Okay. Yes, we are.
0: It's kind of dark. Mm-hmm. It could be lighter,
3: but okay
7: yes and and i'm going to send you if i haven't already and uh i realized that not all of my items got into uh that i sent got into the posted items but i'll make sure uh to send to Chapman and, and send can uh a, a better photographs because i think there wasn't one one of my other items but anyway you can see it so you can see this incredibly heavy solid stone lid to this coffin if you will uh and then the bottom of it that was filled with water and around it is a moat uh, of water, and you can see that in the cutaway right above it. Uh, the four pillars have been uh, have, have been uh, kind of eroded, or maybe somebody destroyed them. I don't know, but they're no longer they no longer have the obelisk heads on them, if you will, the tips.
2: Mm-hmm. And then, if
7: you scroll down to the next photo, um, that's a photo of uh, the bottom part of the sarcophagus, if you will, after the lid has been raised from another angle. Okay. okay. And that was also taken by Haworth and his team in 2007.
0: This one says okay. side view showing the remains of the four corner columns.
7: Um, right. So you're actually only seeing two. Someone of those needs to mute to Skype.
0: Read. We're hearing noises. Thank you.
7: Yeah. So, and then uh, I'm not going to read it, but uh, anyone can read this interesting uh, history. Oh, my God. About the of osiris below that.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Okay. It says very similar to the configuration of the Osirian of Seti yes. I at Abydos.
7: Which is very ancient.
0: Very, very. very pre pharaonic. Totally.
7: Absolutely pre pharaonic which leads me to believe that the tomb of Osiris is as well. And as you know, the um, the, the temple right in front of the sphinx is also very 60 ancient.
0: Seconds. Yeah, keep keep going, Barbara. We were actually at the uh, um,
7: bottom bottom
0: of the hour. So uh, So after
7: the bottom of the hour, and then I know you're going to bring some on somebody else. I do want people to open. If you scroll down in that text under that second photograph, keep scrolling down until you see the link where it says plan of the second level sarcophagus chamber. Hmm. It's Very important to try to open that because you are now going to see um, those side chambers. Those shafts that were found. Okay, well, the we biggest... can do
0: all this when we come back. I got to. Okay. You know, you're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, who's been talking, is Barbara Honiger, who was a member of the Reagan administration. And four years ago, she uh, was able to inveigle Zahi Hawass. And I'm telling you, he had to know who she was. You don't get that kind of treatment, even for $1,500. 1500 that sets pocket change to this guy. No, this was part of a larger plan, which we will return to when we return ourselves on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. other side of midnight, that's Paul Horn, toning in the King's Chamber, which as we've discussed on shows past and we will discuss again on shows future, is all about resonant frequencies, tonalities, sonics in the pyramid, and what do they do to the very structure of six million tons of limestone? according to my old friend, Stan Tenen, as has been confirmed by other researchers in the decades since, the pyramid was built as a machine, as a hyperdimensional torsion field machine, an amplifier. And the way you energize it is with sound, and it resonates. And when it resonates, It does very, very strange things to space and time and the limestone, 70 million year old limestone in which it is anchored, which stretches all the way from North Africa, all the way around the world to Indonesia. In other words, you're resonating at an HD level, the planet Earth itself and what was that supposed to achieve well Barbara, please continue
7: okay so um we're at my item number three and hopefully people have been able to open that it's a document with photos and text and i want you to scroll all the way down in the text under those two photographs until you get to the link where it says plan of the second level sarcophagus chamber now remember, with the cutaway above, you go down a little bit, and then you get to a platform. Then you go down a lot. Then you get to what we're now going to look at. So you open that link, and you're going to see um, the uh, like a a graphic uh, looking down from above uh, on those those side chambers that had those seven black. I presume. I believe they were granite black granite sarcophagi um, with lids of which only two are still there. Uh, And the two that are still there are in chamber D and chamber G. If you can see those Um, and you could see that they've got the lid kind of shifted off in the diagram. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it was. That's the way it was when I was there showing that there is no body inside. Uh, Shaft B over on the left is where, you had to go down to get to this level. And then shaft C is the shaft that continues to go down to the lower level, to the lowest level, the third level down to the actual, what they call the Tomb of Osiris um, that we just saw the photographs of above, where Zawi Hawa had the lid removed and there was no body uh, in the sarcophagus uh, or the coffer uh, in 2007. Um, now the very important Um, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to do this. I hope so. Um, But if you go down to number four, it's very important. Um, Number four in my items, it says Stargate found under the Great Pyramid, question mark. Um, This is a short, it's a very short video. Um, It's one of these kind of uh, history channel type, even though it isn't history channel. It's (laughs) kind of one of these speculative uh, uh, kind of far out Uh, videos that somebody who is not an Egyptologist did however what's important about it is if you go to four minutes and three seconds in and then stop the video I'm not able to do that but if you can do it while I'm talking that would be really important it should be easy to do Um, also from uh, from three minutes and 13 seconds to three minutes and 39 seconds in, there's a 3D graphic and photos, better photos of the tomb of Osiris, better than the two in my item number three. Um, But what's important here is to go two, four minutes and three seconds in to this short video, and there will be a cutaway side diagram of what uh, is alleged to be under the thing. And over on the right, you're going to see a shaft in that cutaway. It was originally, this shaft was originally, and the tomb down there, was originally called Campbell's Tomb. However, that was only down to the second level. This guy Campbell, whoever he was, only got down to those seven sarcophagi. And it was the the sarcophagus of the actual uh, large sarcophagus in the, uh, the third level down that is called the Tomb of Osiris wasn't opened until 2007 by Zali Hala. And I, I agree with you, Richard. I think that there is a time scale for all of this. There's, there's a time scale. When the time's right, they're going to open things.
0: It's a ritual. Okay.
7: It's some kind of a ritual. But that's a very important cutout because, to answer your question, Richard, what happened to the other four huge black granite sarcophagi or coffers? They had to have been gotten out somehow. And if this cutout is anything correct, uh, that would be, it would show you how they would be gotten out, that there is actually, that there are actually temples uh, with columns under this thing. Well, I have seen,
0: I've seen, I'm trying to remember where, I mean, it probably goes back to the 19th century or early 20th, but I've seen diagrams showing the Giza Plateau riddled with tunnels and caverns and sacred spaces I mean it's like it's like a bees beehive down there in it literally in, is. in, in, in three yes. dimensions so I can imagine that at some point someone found a way to take more big sarcophagi out without breaking them apart they're hidden. Well you have
7: to you have to ask you and I'll tell you who I think has it I think the British have it because we know the British got one of them out it's in the British Museum
0: well, they could have bought it from somebody who got it out. So that's you know, well, that is true. They did a lot that, of that. That is true. So, but
7: there is a way to get them out. whole. There and must they be. There are huge.
0: There must be. You,
7: you, they are. They are huge. You cannot get them up that shaft.
0: Can you, you describe can their dimensions up. for people? Guys, that, guys, you, you can,
6: yes, can just run? dig a hole in the. You can just dig one hole down, and pull them up
0: through that hole. That's what they did. But wouldn't you we, we know that? Radar wouldn't there be a, equipment to would, find? Uh, wouldn't there be a record of that? I mean, the one in the British Museum has barely. been there has been there for over a century.
7: You know, it yeah. is possible, it, Richard, that
6: they're that, um, they're less than twenty feet underground. I, I don't. It's not an engineering problem.
7: It's possible. It's possible that they were brought up out of that uh, that square uh, behind the back of the Sphinx. It's possible.
2: Ah. Okay. Yeah. See, this one.
7: Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Okay. So I know we've got other folks who want to come in. So uh, let's just go to my last two items. I don't need to say too much about them. Uh, and then maybe there are a few questions. Uh, number five, the grand, the grand Egyptian Museum is going to be an amazing place. It has. It was supposed to open last year. Um, it, it cost billions of dollars. It is Zawi Hawass' baby. Uh, He has personally raised the funds for it around the world. Mm. Uh, He has even written a grand opera, a grand opera about 1880. You're kidding. No, that will be played, (laughs) that will be produced at the Great Pyramid in the Sphinx for the opening of the Grand Egyptian Museum. And it's supposed to happen. You're going to love this. Drumroll, about the same time that the report is given. Oh on the
0: my Institute
7: God. Intelligence Committee.
0: How cute. Yeah. How cute. By the way, we I think we have Tim Saunders waiting in the wing. So.
7: I know. So the, my last one, I just want people to go there and uh, read about, that's an article, read about the Grand Egyptian Museum. It's only about a mile from the Sphinx and the Pyramids. And you fly into Cairo Airport, it's supposed to open around the mid-June, which is when the uh, UAP report is supposed to be delivered, the deadline delivered to the Senate Intelligence Committee here in the U.S. The last item is, it is a must-watch. It's only about 15 minutes. It's the highlight of about a two-hour video, the official video by the government of Egypt. It's called the Pharaoh's Golden Parade. And this April, all of the pharaohs and queens mummies from the old Egyptian museum in downtown Cairo by Tahiri Square, which is what you see in the background there with the red lights on it, in an actual procession or a parade to the new National Egyptian Museum, which is different than the Grand Egyptian Museum, which is about to open by the pyramids. So be sure and watch that incredible highlights video of the pharaoh's golden parade it's mind-bogglingly
0: awesome okay more production metony- metonymy Uh we can't reach tim so we have much more of a runway daryl let me bring you back in you guys have had hours and hours and hours of confab and conversations and all that um what's your reaction to hearing barbara's extraordinary first-hand experience daryl you need to unmute. Is you
7: still the unmute?
0: Yeah, he's muted. So.
7: Can you unmute him?
0: I can't from here. He has to do it himself, or Brian has okay, to. Okay.
7: Can you hear me now? There
0: you are. There you are.
8: Yeah. Okay. We can. I'm not sure what was happening here, but we we apparently were muted, though I. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Barbara, very very much, uh, for your taking the time to describe what you described. I am absolutely. Jealous. <laughs> so am I. So am I. Anyway, but
0: I value very, my head too much to go and do that for a while. So, <clears throat> yeah.
8: yeah. So, so thank you very much. And uh it's it's our history on this planet is astonishing, and we don't have a tenth of the awareness of our history. We really, we really don't. And. I think we're right at a cusp, and Richard, I think you're absolutely right. whatever is happening is is going faster, and it seems we're approaching something very significant, and I have high hopes I really do
7: I do too Gerald. I'm very optimistic
8: wonderful i agree it's just it's just amazing um again. What's happening on Mars seems to be synchronized, and I know that the discussion was supposed to be China and what happens next. Um, yeah. That will be interesting to find out as to what happens next.
0: Well, I Robert I... apparently is back from his memorial to the, uh, to the hood. Right. <clears throat> he just sent me the physics.org uh, image, and it's exactly as I thought. They took one color image focusing on the solar panels and a bit of the ground of Mars behind it nothing of the horizon nothing of the sky everything is in sync but it's not what i was describing earlier in the program where the only images of the sky and the landscape of the horizon are black and white they have given us only black and white from mars for some reason
3: which raises all kinds of the one that was there four days ago by the way i went back to it and uh they've swapped pictures the other one was a landscape photo but i didn't i I thought it was fishy because the sky was uh, like the old, uh, what did you call it, butterscotch? It yeah, see. yeah. No, that's not the real color of the Martian sky.
0: And see, this mm-hmm. raises all kinds of interesting implications. Sorry, Daryl, I'm kind of like a three-legged heifer here. But it, raises, <laughs> right. it, but it raises the question, how independent is the Chinese People's Republic? You know, there's all this all about geopolitics on Earth. My stance, my position is... Everything going on down here is kabuki theater. When you get upstairs, when you get into the solar system and to the origins of human beings themselves, everybody in this secret mega society is on the same page and they're not supposed to tell us anything. And the Chinese are now, for all their extraordinary wanting to be the superpower of the 21st century, like the 20th was supposed to be the American century, They're not behaving like a superpower. They're behaving like some of the mice that run across my floor. They're afraid of something. (laughs) They are not presenting the real Mars. And the question we need to ask tonight is why not? Who's the big bad boy out there who has kept them in thrall? And that gets Mm -hmm. back into, were they, as I've been saying for months now, the first victims of COVID-19 because somebody slapped them down for making importune representations with their Chang-3 and Chang-4 imagery, which stunningly, if you go through my items, confirms what Apollo found in terms of ancient glass structures and architecture on the moon. And I think their incredible um, timidness now with Mars is a direct result that they got slapped down hard for what they had done importunely with the moon?
8: Time will tell.
3: Hopefully. You know, what's interesting uh, is that, uh, curiously, they're really fascinated with uh, Mars for geopolitical reasons. The Chinese, uh, traditional Chinese name for Mars is Hongxing, which means red star. So, you know, it's not red planet, but they call it Hongxing, red star. And so I am surprised that they're being so slow to release anything, or maybe they found something that's making them really nervous. And
0: Yeah, but you could, could take, a... you could look, the first thing they did with the moon was they took, you know, individual shots and showed yeah. a wonderful video of you two rolling off the lander. Then they took a panorama and they published that, which I have in one of my items uh, showing, you know, this gorgeous 360 view in color. Um, so the, you know, they were not shy about the moon. And when I saw this image of the moon from Chang three published on the people's Republic army, which had the credibility of the mainstay of the current Chinese state, you can't get more official than the people's liberation army. And I enhanced it and bingo, there's all the glass. And if you look at my last uh, second, to last item 13, You'll see that the glass has all kinds of stunning, brilliant colored prisms. And they released this to the world with the credibility of their mainstay, which is their army. And then we had the COVID disaster. I think there's a direct correlation between what happened to them and what they are afraid will happen again Mm. if they show us the real horizon and skies of Mars.
6: Possibly.
0: Uh, richard
6: yes richard well while we're throw, while we're desperately throwing things here in here at the end uh, there's one thing about the um <laughs> egyptian uh uh extravaganza just got that um i wanted to contribute are you, you talking about,
0: about the, the that... hang on are you talking about the pharaoh's golden parade video we've all got to watch no
6: no no i i'm no no uh the i'm talking about the seven black sarcophagi
0: ah okay, okay.
6: Okay. The, uh,
0: that's why I ask uh, questions.
6: Arts, yeah, I think that I do not think that's the, a, a tomb or a temple of Osiris. I think that's an Isis temple. Because Isis had seven scorpion attendants. I believe those are the sarcophagi oh, for her seven no. scorpion what? attendants. And the fact is the Sphinx was originally a female matriarchal civilization's symbol. And was converted somewhere along the line, and which is outside of the scope of the whole, even the uh, the ISIS and Horus story. Uh, so I think it's an ISIS temple myself. Well, that's uh, very
7: interesting. That's extremely interesting. It could be. Um, regardless, yeah. there none of the sarcophagi apparently had a body in them. None of none of them.
6: Sure. Well, it, yeah. That's and they don't have a, they don't have a skeleton of Isis either. You know, this is the <laughs> yeah. symbolic things. So that's the. Barbara, that's, do you know
0: that, that fits their
6: oversize and everything else?
0: We don't have yeah, a lot of time, ahead. so I'm going to try to get in a number of questions. I know here. you're not going to get to my jeweled images, so that's okay. We'll do that go next ahead. week. Come on, we're doing this every week yeah. up until we get the, you know the big revelation, the big reveal. So, sure. you know, patience, prudence. So, Barbara, do you know yes. if Zahi has done any DNA analysis? Of remains of anything, stains, fingerprints, oils, you know, hair scrapings, whatever, in those sarcophagi currently down there.
7: I didn't ask that. Oh, darn, um,
0: darn, darn. darn. I,
7: I didn't ask that. I I doubt it because those the the the, um, the the one the only one that was underwater completely, and when they took the lid off. Even inside, I'm not really sure how that happened, but even inside, it was filled with water. Maybe the lid wasn't completely sealed. Um, but but the water, I mean, I had to get out of there pretty quickly because it was incredibly tepid. I think is the word. Um, it was it was hot and steamy, but it was uh, it wasn't really bad smelling. But it was just it was uh, dank, dank and tepid,
2: hmm. um, fetid. And, I think petted,
7: he, petted, yes fetid
0: is the term, yes.
7: Yes, yeah. is the term. Tepid is like, like tea, ask, cooling.
3: <laughs> yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. So I, I doubt that there would have been any DNA to, uh, to 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 be able to analyze. But I could be wrong. But I could ask Gian Hussein to to ask that question. I would like to just jump in uh, because this is something I wanted to mention if I'd been able to be um, in the the first hour. But uh, there was some discussion about whether. Uh, whether Cairo means Mars, um, I looked that up, and I also asked um, uh, Professor uh, Jihan Hussein that question. And she said, absolutely, uh, uh, Cairo I don't means- care. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Ron, what?
0: Ron. Don't, Ron, please, don't, just, please, please what? be civil. Barbara's talking. You will have time to...
6: Yes, okay, Ron. yes, yes. I'm Excuse not- me, Barbara, go ahead. I just wanted to say, yeah, I, I'm familiar, but go
7: ahead. Well, you don't know what I'm going to say yet, Ron. <laughs> and I'm responding yeah. to what you said. I mean, I'm not I'm not Go gonna for be it. I'm not gonna be a big authority here. I'm just gonna tell you what I was told. Okay, I've yeah. been told this by Professor Jihan who has a PhD, um, uh, from the University of Cairo and she was our guide. I asked her that question because I'm I was interested particularly in the question. And I said, Does Cairo really mean Mars? And she said, Well, indirectly. She said that it literally translates Kahira, that's A-L-Q-A-H-I-R-A-H, which in Arabic, according to her, means literally the subduer, but it usually is translated or interpreted to mean the victorious one, uh, and that it also translates to the, quote, place or camp, as in a military camp, the place or Mm -hmm. camp of Mars, also Also, Mars was Mars, I'm almost done Mm
2: -hmm. Mars was
7: called, Mars was referred to By the ancient Egyptians as Horus of the horizon Or Oxte uh, Which was also the name for the Sphinx, Which was originally painted red And Mars was also known as Horus the red So there are definitely connections However, the word Cairo The Al-Kahiri Does not come, you are correct That it does not go all the way back to ancient Egypt, that's more. Uh, that is a name that's given uh, more in the the time of uh, of uh, after Muhammad.
6: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the name of the fellow that was given uh, the uh, governorship of that area uh, by the by the great caliph of the time, whenever it right. was. And he moved down from um, Libya because he set himself up in Cairo and he renamed the city. From uh, an correct. Egyptian word. No, listen. This is what you just said, and you're, it's absolutely correct, uh, all except for one word. The uh, <laughs> the Egyptian word, the ancient Egyptian word, is pronounced Cairo. He came up with an Egypt and it means the place of combat, and it refers to the war, the battle between um, Horus and Set. The
7: which Horus? Which Horus? Huh? Holmes. Yes.
6: Yeah, the uh, well he he got Egypt if you he call got it Egypt. winning uh yeah, yeah. The um, it was a battle between them. Uh, he also lost. Guys, uh, I think Kevin.
0: we're arguing about how many no. angels are going to dance on the head of this damn.
6: No, no, camp. no, Richard. This is important
0: because it gets these other things fired up, and it's just these
6: are
3: these are, think, are the kind I of things that. I you're just saying what she said in different words to defend. No, I'm not, Robert.
6: Goodness. Hold on a second. She was very. I don't raise my voice much. I mean it. Stupid.
3: Let me finish the yeah. sentence.
6: Well, you don't yeah, have to. Let that, me that, finish that. the sentence here. I want to. I'll be done. Well, you've been The name that he gave it. The name. Please, the name that he gave the city is pronounced Cairo, but it means because it's Arabic, the place of the the place of the vanquisher, or that's you know fair. any derivation of that you like, and that's exactly what Barbara said, and that's what her guide told her. But they twist this. And now, wait, wait, wait. Who was the, the van- connection?
0: Who, who was the vanquisher? Huh? The guy the guy that came down from libya and took over see you're reading this too linearly ron i respect you like immensely otherwise you wouldn't be on the show but in this one you're wrong cuz you're looking at one meaning when it, in reality it's multi-leveled and it goes all the way back to the horus set and horus is mars so can we move on we've
3: got about Four minutes uh, Richard, left. Last word. I found the photograph that I was referring to. I, I send you. it uh, come up again. Go ahead. I sent you the two links there. Maybe you can open them in Astronomy Magazine, the one that claimed this first color photos. Okay. The box. Did you so put you them?
0: Did you put them in the uh, chat there? In the chat. Okay. I see. Something says redirect notice.
3: Yeah, I kept trying to get the direct link, but it just shows me an icon. So I got the that one. Okay. Two. two
0: we we've, we've got literally two minutes to the end of the hour. Daryl, since you have done extraordinary research, and I think have cracked the code of millennia, I want to give you the last word.
8: Well, thank you, Richard, very much. I have been listening to a group of people who are obviously intelligent and educated and committed and very, very much uh, involved in their studies. And Barbara, you are astonishing. Uh, in many ways, uh, we've enjoyed four hours of communication over the phone this week, and I, I walk away just shaking my head in wonderment.
0: Oh, um, oh, uh, bulletin, bulletin, Robert. Yeah. This is a Viking image from Mars—the altered, reddened atmosphere of the blue sky image.
3: I'm scrolling well, down. Well, they claimed that it was a Chinese uh, rover. No,
0: picture. it's Viking from 1976. Original sources. I was there. Remember? I know every... Almost. Sorry, Daryl. So we're talking about a fraud then, Richard? No, we're talking about people who don't know how to read history. That's all. Oh, okay. (laughs) Human frailty.
7: Richard, I would just like to add as my last sentence, uh, I may have mentioned this on a previous show, but I was sitting uh, in a red velvet chair uh, in the auditorium at... uh, uh, in california uh at um nasa facility there in the south bay area when the first image came in line by line from the viking lander of mars i was
0: wow Mm -hmm. see folks we actually do closed loops on this show what robert talked about earlier in physics.org is an ancient viking image from viking one the first no actually the second color image because this is the altered one that fletcher ordered be made red and the color blue sky version be destroyed in terms of its negative so we have closed the loop hey boys and girls thank you. we're out of time we've entered the thank runway
8: you, thank you very much
0: next week we will pick this all up there'll be new stuff there'll be new news there'll be new players there may be new revelations And remember, we're days away from maybe a geopolitical earthquake. The United States government admitting someone is in our skies. And they may be related. So until next week, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left. And by now, you all know what that means. Straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And we are clear. We're okay. clear.
7: <laughs>
0: yes. Well, that was <laughs> yeah,
6: great Barbara, radio. Dear, I'm not trying to, I wasn't trying to pick a fight with you. That's uh, just a, no, that's I, know, just a, I know
7: you were. They thought you fun. were, and I knew you weren't.
0: Okay, good. Ron, you yeah, just have uh, to learn how to temper your enthusiasm so you don't come off to the world like a chauvinist pig. That's all.
7: No, I did Yeah, I, didn't yeah, I was
6: the ever. one that was pitching a matriarchal civilization. I don't know how that makes me show this picture. Yeah, yeah okay. that, I agree. Uh,
2: and, I, and it doesn't
3: I, elevate you when you call uh, Graham Hancock an idiot. Okay, that that doesn't ra- resonate. I said if he said that, he's an no, idiot, no, and I'll no, stand by no, it. If you yeah. say it, you're an idiot. It's yeah, that well, simple. I, I can, I can uh, engage in that kind of uh, stupidity too, but I choose not to, okay?
7: By the way, oh, so for you don't think, wants wants no, is, is Daryl still on? I hope. Yes, yes, of course, I'm here. Oh, hi, Daryl. Uh, for anybody, who wants, for anybody who wants to know, I happen to know because uh, one of my best friends in the 9/11 Truth Movement, Cat McGuire, Kathleen McGuire of New York, she lives in Manhattan by Times Square. She and her twin sister Colleen went on a tour of Egypt with Graham Hancock, and uh, he took his tour down into. Uh, the tomb of Osiris as well. He got Graham Hancock can get you down there.
2: Mm.
7: Cool. Yeah. Well, if Which we quite
3: Graham, Han- Graham Hancock got kicked out of Egypt. He, I don't think he's ever going to go back because he unwittingly insulted Zahi Hawass. You know, the English say you should be ashamed of this. You should be ashamed of that. You can't say that to to uh, an Egyptian, especially a guy like ha- Hawass. I saw the. The exchange, a wasp blew his stack.
2: Yeah,
7: I know, see, how dare you say a shame to speak. It was on the Robert's right. Oh, my God.
3: I, I, it was just a faux pas, but it's a faux yeah, pas. that got him kicked out of Egypt for, <laughs> forever. And That's why we
6: have stopped. diplomats.
7: Oh, it's an ego the size of the Great Pyramid, you know. <laughs>
6: yeah. now, oh, no. Really?
7: Yeah.
6: <laughs>
2: Barbara,
8: can I ask you one question?
2: You could ask more you were, if you when want. When you were
8: down, when you were down in those lower levels, what was the room finished like? Where the-